0: Let's take it to the end.
1: Hey guys, welcome to another fun and exciting episode of The Knife Perspective. This is number 010, The Stephen Fowler Affair. I'm Dan Eastland, your host, and I am here with your co-host, Kyle Daly. Kyle, how the heck are you? Pretty good, Dan. How are you? I'm good. Told you that Countdown would give you a much better intro, didn't I? Yeah. No outtakes this time. Yeah, that was pretty funny last episode. (laughs) You know, and it's pretty telling that that's that's where our headspace was when we started the episode. Yeah, that was pretty good. Dylan was a fun time. How are you doing this evening?
2: I'm doing pretty good. Uh, I got the boys to bed, and I've got to finish up some knives after we get done recording. So that'll be
1: there will be a, a little bit of a late night. You know, I uh, I'm, I'm feeling you a little bit. I I somehow managed to forget to go to sleep last night. Yeah. So I am uh, I'm propping myself up with a little. Coffee, uh, brought to you by the fine gentleman at Dia Espresso Libre. De Espresso Libre for all your finest coffee needs. And that was starting to get me a little too up, so now I'm counterbalancing with a little Dragon Milk Stout. Nice. So at it, some point during this episode, I should I should mellow out, and we'll get a good solid five minutes. Or or we'll just hear you go plop and <laughs> fall out of your chair. That is a distinct possibility. <laughs>
2: Well, make sure you leave your microphone plugged in so we can hear you snoring. (laughs) We got our sponsors, uh, Dogwood Custom Knives. We have Dogwood Custom Knives for all your knife needs and Cage Daily Knives for uh, also your knife needs. And uh, this is a pretty special episode because we have a new sponsor that's not just our wives and our knife businesses. We have Jess Hoffman of Hoffman Knives and Jay Hoffman Hardwoods on instagram he uh, has a lot of a lot of great knives i won one of his scimitar looking knives at blade show that he gave away this year uh that was totally awesome with some awesome burled oak uh, dyed green handle that's been posted on our instagram channel the uh, knife perspective instagram and uh, he sells a lot of great stabilized wood all stabilized by kmg and has a lot of a lot of great wood uh on there Lots of different kinds. You're a big I,
1: fan of his wood, I can tell.
2: Yeah. I use I'm using a piece of curly cherry right now on one of the knives I'm gonna be finishing
1: tonight. So you'll be polishing his wood tonight? I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> so
2: <laughs> I don't even know. Alrighty. <laughs> so we got uh we got our dealers. We got Old Town Cutlery. Uh they sell both dogwood custom knives and Cage Daily knives. And uh, we have Knife Center that sells dogwood custom knives, and I
1: believe Dan has a uh, a thing yep. to talk about with them too. Uh, right now, they are the only place in the country you can get the dogwood Kepharts. hearts. They were wise enough to put in a a pretty significant order at Blade Show, so they are in the process. I think they've got four on the site right now, and they've got another fifteen coming. Um, wow. that's where all of my production is going right now. So that is the only place to find. Those dogwood cap hearts, right now. By middle of the month, uh, I'll have them, and Old Town will have them as well. But until then, if you want them, Knife Center is the place that's got them. Very cool. And the guys
2: at Knife Center are uh, great guys. Talk to a a couple other their people at Blade
1: Show. Great people. I have really enjoyed working with them. We've we've talked about it before that dealing dealing with dealers. Can be a really tricky relationship, and they 've been great to work with cool, which brings us to shout outs and reviews and you heard me harping a little bit on the uh, the dogwood cat and one of the reasons for that is um, i have
2: i have been you want me to say it you've
1: been you 're on the cover of a, a knife magazine it's pretty sweet man I am, and it was it's so when I first started with Andy, I remember going into his shop and he had his Knives Illustrated cover framed on the shop wall, and I remember mm-hmm. thinking to myself, "I'm going to be that good one day. One day I'm going to be I'm going to be worthy of a, a Knives Illustrated cover." And that uh, that's been one of my one of my goals. One of the one of my goals for I've made it as a you know I'm a skilled knife maker. I'm a real knife maker. So I've I've been very flattered, um, and it was uh, Joshua. I'm going to slaughter the pronunciation of his name, and he always gives me a hard time. I believe it's Schwanwagon Schwanz Joshua, uh, who I met on my first Bushcraft Global trip. uh, Wrote the article for it, so it was it was great to work with him as well.
2: Very cool. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty big accomplishment. Not not many people get to be on the front cover of a, a magazine like that. Yeah, I'm, uh, it, thank you. It, it, yeah, thank you. Yeah, and uh, we've got a couple of Instagram shoutouts. Fiery Ice Forge was the first one in his stories to say they actually listened to a whole three and a half hour episode of the Dylan Fletcher Experience. Uh, so, congrats to him for being the first one and. Uh, 5050 Forge gave some awesome feedback to uh, like listening. He makes some awesome Damascus uh, steel that I've used on uh, on a paring knife that was turned out really cool for Blade Show.
1: Yeah, I've been Instagram stalking him for a little
2: while. Yeah, he's out, uh, I believe it's uh, Colorado Springs. He told me, I was like, how do you keep everything from rusting? He's like, there's no moisture up here.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you suck. <laughs> <laughs> I had to, I had a natural wood handle that I did for a guy in Arizona and I sent him the knife. And I mean, right away I got a picture. Hey, it's, it's separated from the handle from the tang. And he sent me a picture and I said, yeah, I don't know what happened. You know, I'll, I'll refund you for the shipping. Just send it back to me and I'll fix it. And it gets back to me and I cannot find, I can't find where it's separated. Everything is solid. So I take a picture of it. I send him the picture, you know, we're both scratching our heads. So I send it to him and maybe a week later, he sends me a picture and it's separated from the Tang again enough that he could, he could get the corner of a business card into it. Wow. So I said, okay, leave the business card in the handle <laughs> and then send it back to me. And when it got back to me, it was so tight that I couldn't pull the business card out. And it was from, the difference in moisture between Georgia in August and
0: Arizona—that
1: hmm. uh, it was so dry over there that the, the the wood would dry out and contract, and it would open up a little gap. So what'd you what'd you do to fix that? Um, you, I wound up switching to a different handle material. Or? Yeah, nowadays I probably would have just gone will just go with stabilized. But he wanted natural wood, so I set the kiln really low. And dried the absolute bejesus out of a uh, a piece of wood, and then glued it up, and that seemed to have worked. It was it was a little hard because by the next day it had started to swell on the handle, but um, when I sent it back out to him, we didn't have any trouble after that.
2: Oh, that's good. I think you wanted to say a couple things about the Georgia Makers Guild meeting that uh, yeah. happened this past weekend. I
1: had a great time down there. Um, Jason Knight was there. Uh, it, was really, it was a pleasure to meet him. Uh, he is a fascinating guy and just fun to listen to. Um, I got a chance to uh, get a little hands-on on one of the Wilmot grinders. And I think, yeah, I've been... I've got two K and G's and I love them, but it's time for something else. And I think, uh, I think a Wilmot's in my near future. Cool, man. I think I'm going to sell one of the K and G's. I'm keeping one of them because uh, among other things, I love the rotary platen that they do and I love the versatility of their tool heads, Mm -hmm. but I think I'm going to sell one of my K and G's and, and go to a Wilmot and a K and G set up in the grind room. Yeah.
2: You might be able to still use the, use the same thing. I think I'm pretty sure the Wilmot grinder uses that same one and a half
1: inch square. Um, I might have to check. Um, I know he doesn't make a rotary platen and it's one of the things that really impressed me about him as I asked about it. And he said, uh, you know, that's KMG's invention. They came up with it. I'm not going to rip it off. You know, I don't think it's patented, but we all know that they came up with it. I don't make one
0: mm-hmm.
1: given what we do in this industry that really impressed me." Um, and yeah I shouldn't be surprised cause he's a knife maker as well as a grinder manufacturer but mm-hmm. yeah when you when you meet somebody with that kind of integrity it's it's all the better if you can do business with them
2: yeah yeah i had I had dinner with him and Liam Hoffman two uh blade shows ago and uh talked with him and I believe it was his girlfriend at the time, and uh they were great to uh, talk to he had told tons of stories about spearfishing and stuff it was pretty
1: cool uh yeah we talked a little bit about uh using some firefly for uh dive knives and a couple of uh a couple of alloys that we could try have you seen the uh the video that's out now of the guy that's spearfishing and he, i could you could i can't see anything out of the murk. and then the next thing you see there's just a mouth and he basically shoots a tiger shark point blank through the mouth as it's coming at him. I uh, can't say I have. All right, I'll find it and send it <laughs> this to this you. Um, this one sounds pretty terrifying. Yeah, there's some comments on it about you know, different things, and all I could think of is you'd never if, if that was me, you'd never be able to use that wetsuit again. It'd be ruined. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, Aldo Bruno, uh, the original New Jersey steel baron, was out there too. And huh? – it is – I always enjoy talking to him. He uh, he sold me my very first stick of steel um, and spent I – mean, talk about a prince of a man. He probably spent 45 minutes on the phone with me um, just talking through different options until I finally decided which piece of steel I wanted. 45 minutes to sell me three feet of steel. And yeah. you just can't – you can't beat that kind of customer service. Yeah. Um, you know most people would have gotten frustrated and saying this isn't worth my time and that's one of the reasons that they're still the first place i check for steel
2: yep i think they actually that's the first people i bought my steel from also
1: well and we get we got a heavy mole in sometime i was talking to him and one of the reasons that he started was when he was making he still makes but when he was in his heyday of making there was little to no options you there was one or two companies and you just had to take whatever they had. Mm -hmm. And he got very frustrated with that and wanted to give makers options. And that's why he started the, the New Jersey steel Baron was specifically to give makers options. Mm, That's cool. Uh, We had, uh, we had eight new members uh, juried in this uh, at this meeting. Uh, Some really impressive. uh, I'm hesitant to say young makers, but new makers there's a, I'm always glad to see kitchen knives. There are several people making kitchen knives, some really beautiful Japanese-style knives that uh, that impressed me. And we'll—I uh, need to confirm the names. I want to make sure I've gotten everybody's names correct. So, hopefully, by the time these show notes are up, I will have heard back from the secretary, and we'll have everybody's name up, and we'll be sure to plug them next week. But I don't want to get something wrong. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've heard that people have feelings And that's one of the ways you can hurt them
2: <laughs> Yeah We we might still butcher their name No matter if we have it uh, in front of us or not though.
1: That's true As long as it's not as hard as Joshua Whatever's last name, then we're good
2: <laughs> uh, So, uh, you had a Knife in the News segment also
1: I did Um you know, the last couple have been a little bit of a, a celebration of the knife community and the importance of having a knife on you. This one is – it's a little bit sad, and at first I thought it was going to be funny sad. But in the end, uh, the young man that's being interviewed for the article makes some interesting points. Um, this is from our uh, slightly demented cousins uh, across the ocean over in England. And it talks about originally their new technique to combat the, the knife violence that they're dealing with. And they are using hashtags. And at first I got excited because it looked like hashtag free knife. And then I realized that the Dixia was kicking in and it's hashtag knife free. Yeah, But uh, hashtags are so yesterday. I don't even know why the government's trying to use them. Yeah. <laughs> um, but their other, the this pincer, this great assault on knife violence, one hand is their hashtags, the other is sweeping in with uh chicken shop packaging. Yeah. they're putting heartbreaking, dare I say, rendering, heart rendering stories of people's experience with knives on um chicken shop packages. Yeah, it's like the equivalent the of their like Chick fil A or something I heard over there. Um, and from what I understand, it's it's a little more cultural. It's a hangout place as well as a place to get fried chicken. Um, I'm not really sure. I feel like we need to – I think we need to go investigate this. I think we need to get one or two more sponsors and do a knife perspective uh, trip to England to investigate. Yeah, I'd be up for that. Uh, so if you just
2: take care of that. Um... <laughs> I'll put it on my never-ending list
1: of things to do. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, this kid, um, uh, some, some of the stuff he had to say, I just, I couldn't get behind, but he made two really good points that I'm not hearing out of a lot of the, the noise coming out of England with the, the banning knives. Um, one was, it's a waste of money. You could have used this money to, uh, to try and combat the problem. And I guess it kind of ties together with the second point. His point was, it's not the knives that are the problem, it's the people, which I think is a great point. I mean, you ban guns and that got rid of gun violence, but it didn't get rid of violence. Just people started using acid and knives and sticks and people are still killing people. And his argument was, you could have taken the, and I think it was something like 50,000 pounds. So that's somewhere around a hundred thousand dollars. And that could have gone to to youth programs and sports clubs that would have given kids something to do other than be on the street, being a little terrorist. Yep. And then again, back to the point of it's not the knife. That's just a tool. It's the person. You don't have a knife problem. You got a people problem. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) people are going to find a way to kill each other or hurt each other no matter what. Yeah. Cain and Abel didn't have a knife or a gun. Mm-hmm. as much as we want to laugh at the silly brits you know this remember this could be us in 2050 years right now it's it's banning scary firearms but once we're killing each other with something else that's going to get banned too so apart from from laughing at the silly english people you also need to to take a moment and look at this and go hey if we don't address our people problem we could be in the same situation. Yep, for sure. You know, that's a little deep. I I really feel uncomfortable. That's that's not where I want to be. Yeah. How about we lighten it up and introduce our uh, guest for this show? Uh, Stephen Fowler, who uh, I, I first met him at a Georgia Bushcraft event. And two things really impressed me about him right off the bat. And one is how well-spoken he was for being a shaved yeti. And the other was...
3: I try very much not to (laughs) shave. Thank you.
1: (laughs) And the other was he was the first ABS member that I could have an in-depth, peaceful, nonviolent, no-hammer-throwing discussion about the pros and cons of forging versus stop removal and really excellent metallurgical knowledge. And from then or from there... I've really enjoyed getting to know him. Uh, I got to do a roundtable with him and Ethan Becker, and I think I probably learned more than the people that were there. I learned more than the crowd did from uh, from that roundtable with the two of them. There's a lot of good knowledge between the
2: Ethan Becker and Steven. Yeah. Uh, you met him. I'm
3: going to say that was more Ethan than me. <laughs> we're just going to throw yeah, that out oh, there. I mean, we can all agree <laughs> on that,
1: but... <laughs> I was trying to sound humble, man. Come on, let me have my moment. Um, and uh, uh Kyle, you met Steven at uh Blade Show, didn't you?
2: I didn't actually make it around to his table. Too many things to do. It's um it's amazing how uh you work so many hours getting ready for that whole event and then you get there and you blink your eyes and then it's Sunday and the whole room's torn down in less than an hour.
3: It, and all you know is your back hurts.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it is a very rare moment that you can meet a man that big in a kilt that small. <laughs> I strongly recommend making it by his table next year.
2: Yeah. I saw enough kilts just seeing you uh, at Blade <laughs> Show. <laughs> uh,
1: hey, Saturday gets hot. Sometimes you need a little cross breeze. <laughs> whatever it's, whatever gets you through Blade Show. Hey, okay. Same reason I wear a kilt in the shop.
0: Uh-huh, uh-huh.
1: You know, sometimes... Sometimes you need a little swish in the hips, get a little cross breeze going, cool you down. Nice. Steven knows my pain. He forges in a kill.
3: Absolutely.
1: <laughs> nice. So, yeah. Steven, uh, where, did, where did you grow up?
3: Um, I actually kind of grew up all over the place. Um, when, I was, uh, when I was a kid, my dad uh, did a lot of uh, computing, or computer consulting for the various bell companies. Uh, so we started out in uh, Virginia Beach, Virginia. And then went out to uh, Los Angeles for a few years uh, and then ended up in uh, Atlanta, Georgia when I turned 13 and pretty much been here since then. I went up to Kansas for a few years in my early 20s to help my brother start a a company and kind of get my feet under me, uh, but then came back to Atlanta uh, a couple years later and I've been here since.
1: So as we all know, your first knife is the single most formative experience of your life. What was your first knife?
3: Oh. It, it was terrible <laughs> it was terrible so so we we kept to 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 get there we 've kind of got to back up into into you know what what started this whole thing um you know i've been i've been doing martial arts since I was seventeen years old. And in my early twenties, I started. Don't
1: be a cold steel. Don't be no. a cold steel. No, no, no. Don't no. Be a there, cold there's
3: no steel. <laughs> there's no cold steel uh, in this conversation.
2: Okay, I, I guess we can write them off for sponsorship of the podcast. <laughs>
3: oh. Um, uh. Anyway, so yeah, <laughs> I actually really like their products. They make a decent product. It's just the advertising is a little little over the top sometimes. Yeah. Anyways, moving on from that. Um. So I'd been studying martial arts since I was 17 years old, and in my – around 19 or 20 years old, started studying a a Japanese sword system where we're you know, using Japanese swords. Well, in most of those systems, you start out with wooden swords, and you get to a certain point, and they start wanting you to use an actual sword. Well, I don't know if you've looked into swords that are useful for actually cutting things. Uh, They're pricey, Um, and I'm cheap. So (laughs) – as I'm sure you can relate, I kind of looked at it and went, well, I'll just make one. And uh, it would have been substantially cheaper just to just to save up some money and buy one. But um, so in in the process of, of, you know, making that decision of I'm going to make Japanese swords, um, I started looking around and and uh, trying to find resources. Now, this is back in, you know, the early 2000s and there wasn 't nearly the the online resources that you can go to now with YouTube and very helpful uh, very condensed uh, tutorials and oh, you just do this uh, so what i where I ended up uh, bouncing off of was uh, don fogg 's bladesmith 's forum. Um, And, uh, kind of poking around and, 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 you know, figured out how, all right, this is how you're going to build a forge. And, and I got myself a piece of railroad track and a crappy, uh, sledgehammer from Walmart or something. And, uh, and at the time. I was a trim carpenter. I was doing trim carpentry in rather nice houses, and we had these iron balusters, and you'd, you'd cut off a couple inches. <laughs> you know where I'm going with this. You'd, you'd cut, off a, cut off a couple inches of each one and kind of fit it to the, the stairway, and so I, I'd save those little pieces, and I'd take them home, and I'd, and I'd beat on them, and I ha- I had no idea, uh, you know, what blade steel was in relation to steel and steel is steel right i mean it's 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 steel all steel it, is it's steel. hard yeah so uh so i pounded out this uh, this banana shaped weird thing and uh put some walnut handles on it with some some brass pin stock that i got from ace hardware that wasn't even actually round and uh <laughs> and i just and, and i i spent easily three weeks working on i didn't have any power tools i did i I had a drill press but no other power tools no grinders i had files um then i made this knife and and i've still got it uh actually i was it was kind of fun for me when i did my journeyman smith test at the blade show i brought that knife and i put it on the table with my five (laughs) test knives and you know master smiths are coming along looking at like what is that thing? It's like, that's <laughs> the very first knife I ever made. It's terrible, but there you go. You know, and it.
1: Proof that not only are you a skilled maker, but you have a sense of knife.
3: <laughs> I try to. You got it. You, you can't take yourself too seriously, or you're just going to tear yourself up. You know? Um, so I, I had this just awful banana shaped piece of steel that wasn't straight. It, like, it was it was bad. It was bad. Um, so I, I will claim that as the first knife I ever made. But I mean, when I was ten years old, I was the kid in the in the driveway making a puddle of WD forty and a nail and just pounding it into this teeny little little sword looking thing. Because you you know you can take the the double head nails and and, it, you, yes. and you can flatten out the the end and it kind of looks like a little sword. Yeah.
1: Yeah, because the, the first head is the guard, and the second head is the palm, pommel.
3: Exactly, exactly. So I, I used to make those all the time when I was a, a little kid. Um, so, but my my first knife was a was made out of a wrought iron baluster, and uh, it, it it it's terrible.
1: <laughs> what, uh, what was the first knife you ever had?
3: The very first knife I ever had, my dad gave me a Swiss Army knife, Boy Scout style. Uh, you know, the, the, the standard little one little blade and the nail file and the scissors on the back, that one. Uh, And I still have that knife. I I broke the blade on it. Uh, so he gave that to me when I was nine years old. I broke the blade when I was 12, trying to take a pit out of a peach. I I know. mm? I, yep. It's terrible, but I,
1: I've I've done worse. Um,
3: so that was, that's the very first knife I ever got. And, uh, I, I still have it. It's in my, in my dresser upstairs.
1: Yeah, if if you haven't broken or lost the first knife you ever had, I'm always suspicious.
3: <laughs> oh, I mean, the, I have, uh, the scales disappeared, you know, the little red scales. Those, I yep. I couldn't begin to tell you when those disappeared. So it's just, you know, the, you know, the rivets right there with the, uh, I don't care. That's my first knife. I still
1: have it. I still have my first knife because when I left for the Army, my mom kind of cleaned up and boxed up my room. Mm-hmm. And she found my first knife. Uh-huh. I have no idea how long it was lost in that room mm-hmm. but arguably i lost my first knife and just was fortunate enough to have lost it in my own room
3: mm-hmm. I, I i will say in perfect honesty i i could not walk upstairs and pick it up right now to take a picture for you but i know it's in a box on in my closet because we just moved to a new house a couple months ago so i could find it by tomorrow i promise
1: if I didn't know for a fact that you moved both your house and your shop recently, I would call you on that. But I'm, I'm going to give you a pass. Fair enough.
2: We're going to need a picture of that knife. Though. I,
3: I, yeah. I will get it for you with the blade open. Nice. I actually sharpened because there's like a quarter of an inch left. I sharpened it, and I kept using it for years.
1: Awesome. Please do, because we got a picture of Kyle's first knife and my first knife. We got to get Dylan to uh, get us a picture of his. Uh,
3: if, if you want to, if you want to cry with me, I'll send you a picture of the first knife I made. Also.
1: Ugh. Oh, please do. Yeah, uh, we've also everybody's gotten to laugh at my first knife, so fair is fair.
3: Fair is fair. That's right.
1: <laughs> so, if you've heard the episode before, and I know you have, mm-hmm. you know that uh, the meeting your wife story is on a sliding scale between Dan and Kyle. Yes. Yes. So, so where between Dan and Kyle is your "I met my wife" story?
3: I'm afraid I'm I'm much closer to to Kyle. I've got a pretty uh, a pretty vanilla story with my wife. Um, she was uh, my little sister's best friend, <laughs> and they used to hang out a lot. And I was like, "Hey, you're you're kind of cute. Let's." Uh...
1: Hey, um, <laughs> let's let's touch on uh, age gap or this. <laughs> it, this could be creepy. I think we're going to have some editing just to do. Just two years.
3: Just two years. <laughs> Okay, nothing significant. (laughs) And when we met, you know, we were I was 20. She was 18. um, And we we met and then so we met just before I went to Kansas for a couple of years. Um, And, you know, nothing romantic or anything happened. And then when I came back a couple years later, she was hanging out kind of a lot more. And that's when I, hey, hey, how you doing? So, (laughs) yes,
1: hey, you grew up.
3: (laughs) When we actually started dating, I think I was 20, I was 22 and she would have been 20.
1: So, Mm -hmm.
3: yeah, because we got married when she was 21. So, yes.
1: Yeah, because that was about to be way closer. That might have been more Dan than Dan. (laughs) No, no. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, You have five kids? Four. Four little girls. Four. Yes. So your wife has five kids. (laughs) You have four.
3: (laughs) Yes. And the big one is the problem.
1: Uh, how do you balance? I mean, how do you balance that big a family commitment and work?
3: Um, I, you know, it's it's there's always the, kind of the give and take. I've I've kind of we've settled into more or less a schedule where. Um, you know, Saturdays I work in the garage, uh, pretty much all day long and it, it tends to work out pretty well because my two oldest love to come out and, and forge with me. It's fun. They have no interest whatsoever in making knives. They like to make little S hooks and curves. And my, my second daughter likes to make letters like, daddy, can I make an L today? Oh, all right. We're going to make an L today. I'll figure it out. I have no idea how to do that. Let's go. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> um, I, you know, a smith is a smith
3: right and then I mean, uh, no. you know a lot of a lot of evenings during the week uh, you know after i get finished with my day job I'll, I'll go out and you know work on grinding or filing or you know whatever whatever project i'm working on um right right now um i i actually stopped taking orders on on a list a couple years ago so that i could focus on working towards my master smith so right now i'm i'll probably spend the rest of y- the year uh 2019 29- you know, 2019 working on my master Smith dagger.
1: So now's a good time to mention that, uh, I'm finally ready to learn to beat things with a hammer and I'd like to come down and visit. Fantastic.
3: You should do that. We'll have fun.
1: you have I, to bring uh, the kills,
3: but I know you have one, oh, so it's okay.
1: Oh, that's a given. <laughs> I mean, it's just a matter of whether or not it's my summer weight or my winter weight.
3: I would, I would suggest the summer weight. It, it gets, it gets warm
1: in the shop. It's swampy, <laughs> as we might say. <laughs> uh, so, I take it you're, the new shop is up and running.
3: It is. Uh, there's, you know, still the the growing pains of. Uh, I for the life of me, I don't know where any of the tooling for my lathe is. <laughs> I have the the tool holder. That and was,
1: you just bought like a big, huge oh, Cadillac lathe.
3: Oh, like literally the size of a Cadillac. It's it's actually the size of a Volkswagen bus. It's a 17 by 80 Klausing Colchester. It's massive.
1: wow because size matters
3: size matters that's right and i I was not looking for or intending to buy a lathe of that size uh it's a funny story how we got into that lathe um i was laying in bed kind of looking at looking at lathes on ebay and craigslist and trying to get an idea of you know what my my pricing was going to be and i had this little budget that i thought all right
1: you look at different porn than i do
3: (laughs) i know it's machines um (laughs) But uh, you know, I had this this little amount of money, like hey, I can probably spend this, and Bethane won't kill me, you know that whole thing. And uh, so I'm saying, I'm sitting there just looking around, and and I come across this auction on eBay for th- this lathe, and the auction is at three hundred dollars with no reserve. Nobody has bid on it. I was like, well, I mean, I'd be stupid not to try, right? So I put yeah. So I put three hundred. You're nothing
1: if you're not stupid. <laughs>
3: Touche. Um, so, so I put so I put a bid in on it, of, you know, three hundred and fifty dollars, and you know, didn't think anything else of it. Well, about a week later, Beth Ann and I are, are out doing something, and I get this email: "You won." Oh no. <laughs> Yeah. Now I have to explain to my wife why I have to drive up to Massachusetts and pick up a 10,000-pound lay. Yeah. Hey,
1: baby, <laughs> I'm going to need a 17-foot trailer that's rated at 10 tons and not a lot of questions.
3: That, that's uh, that's kind of how that worked, yeah. Um, so I ended up going up there. What what it, what it was was a uh, the redevelopment companies that you see had bought this old brownstone building like on the river up there in Massachusetts. And they were – uh, they were turning it into like loft space, and there were these machines in the basement, and they didn't have any idea what to do with them or how to move them. So they just wanted them gone, uh, which worked out well for me because I showed up with the trailer and they put the lathe on it and went, Oh, hey, this goes with that, and these go with that. They ended up giving me another like $5,000 worth of stuff with the lathe. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I got.
1: No, please don't make me take these tools. Yeah, I know,
3: right? So I got weirdly lucky with the lathe. Um, uh, the luck is somewhat subjective when we start talking about how to move the lathe but
1: because <laughs> <laughs> you we'll touch on it later but you've got a track history what, what, with moving what were equipment you planning, yes
2: what were you planning on doing with the?
1: oh
3: you know little stuff pommel nuts and and thumb screws and pivot screws and and things for folders and you know stuff that knife makers do nothing bigger than a couple inches <laughs>
2: So you were looking uh, for like a smaller yeah, tool room yeah. or like herage mm-hmm. lathe, and, and No, like a, the, not from the big as that a trunk? Not
1: what I was looking for. <laughs> I now have the image of a yeti-sized man <laughs> at a seventeen-foot la- uh, lathe turning a little quarter-inch screw.
3: <laughs> yes, the, and and I have done it. I've done teeny little screws on this lathe <laughs> that I can I can lay down between the the tailstock and the headstock on this lathe. It's huge. <sighs> yeah.
2: Yeah, there's the the machine shop motto of you can do a small job on a big machine, but you can't do a big job on a small that's, machine. That's what I tell my wife, and she doesn't believe me. <laughs> that sounds like some <laughs> early dating advice. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, when you when you're on a date and you come
1: home with a seventeen by uh-huh. thirty yeah. uh, blade. Um. So, what's the favorite? What's your favorite knife you've made?
3: My favorite knife I have made, yep <sighs> so there's uh, I, I can't point to a specific knife, but there's a, a knife uh style, I guess you could say that I've made uh it's it's you know it's it's kind of a big recurve chopper bowie, and it's it's funny to me in my head. Um, I love making this I mean it's like a twelve inch blade, big, big. Recurve Bowie blade, big sharp clip, and you know, all this. It's a fun knife to make. I have all kinds of fun making this knife. And as soon as I'm done with it, I look at it and go, Well, that was neat. I have no interest in using that. <laughs> I don't like <laughs> I don't like using the knife. It's a fun knife to make, if if that makes any sense. You know what I mean? Well
1: Yeah, and that's a very good point. Uh uh I- What's fun to make isn't always fun to use.
3: Right, right. You know, my favorite knives that I, that I actually like to use are my chef's knives. I love making chef's knives because you get such such fantastic feedback in in terms of your your heat treat and your metallurgy and your your geometry and your handle shaping and you know your balance and all all of the things that make a knife actually function come to to a, a very fine point when talking about a chef's knife because you can use. You know, a hunter, and you get used to your hunter, and you kind of figure out how to make it do what you want it to do and so forth. But when you're using chef's knives, it either cuts the tomato or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, you stop using it.
1: Well, and, you know, with a skinner, there's 32 different ways to to skin big game. Sure. Uh, when, it, when it comes to dicing, there's a very limited number of ways of doing it, and it either mm. works or it doesn't.
0: Right, exactly. I mean,
1: you're, plus, you're a masochist, so you love to do things like <laughs> really high, long grinds on very thin stock. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite knife that you didn't make? Appreciate from another maker or another company or something? And it so, totally doesn't have to be one of the two makers that you're talking to <laughs> right now. Or even the one that's going to edit this.
3: <laughs> Fair enough. Um <laughs> As, as, as pithy and weird as it, well, not weird, but as, as pithy as it may sound, actually Bob Lovelace, shoot knife is, Ooh. is my absolute, just a, and, and not the fancy one, not the stag liner or not the stag handle with the red liner. No green canvas. That is such a, a perfectly proportioned and shaped knife. In my opinion, it's just everything. That a, that a knife should be that you're gonna carry and use on a daily basis.
1: There's a reason the man died with a 10 year waiting list.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I know, right? And, you know, as a, as a forged knife maker, you know, you, you might assume, well, he's gonna say Bill Moran or, uh, you know, you know, one of the other iconic, uh, you know, Don Fogg or Bill Moran or, you know, somebody that's, you know, just an, um, an icon of the forged knife industry and i go yeah they're they're beautiful knives but the just the proportion and the usability and the shape and the comfort if you've never held a a true bob loveless not a copy you know by a lot of the makers that do a really good job modern now of a a bob loveless but an actual bob loveless with the naked lady uh um, maker's mark on it 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 is a, a whole different thing to put in your hand
2: very cool. Have you ever have you ever listened to the Mark of the Maker podcast?
3: Uh no, I don't think I have. Mark of
2: the Maker. You know? They did. Yeah, they uh it's uh Tom Crine Oh, and yeah, I know Tom uh, Crine. Yeah. yeah, so they did a whole episode on Bob Loveless mm-hmm. that was really 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 good. Uh all this history and how he started out and everything was really really mm-hmm. enter- entertaining and
1: educational. I really love his spiel on handle design (laughs) and i'm not going to say it i'm going to make everybody listening right now if you if you want to know go look it up it is Mm -hmm. totally worth the listen absolutely or the read or however you hear about it and then the next time you pick up a knife by another maker and it feels just right just remember that
3: (laughs) (laughs) you i promise you won't be able to not think of that
2: Yeah, you could look at one of the friend of the podcast <laughs> knives, uh, the David Anderson Canteen <laughs> uh, <Yeah. North> Knife.
1: <laughs> Thank you. I was thinking about it, but I wasn't going to say it. Thank you very much. I didn't think that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he knows. <laughs> Sorry, David. <laughs> um, uh, he was at dinner with us the first year that came out with uh, Joe Flowers, and Joe didn't realize that that David was the the designer <laughs> and he gets really graphic about mm. the handle design and it, it, there's a, a a mixture of <laughs> just uproarious <laughs> laughter and real discomfort at the table and finally Joe kind of clues in he's like, so who'd made this? <laughs> and David goes uh that's mine. <laughs> <laughs> nice it was one of the most joe moments joe has ever joed (laughs) but
3: to to be fair and as as knife makers you'll uh, you know this will make more sense to you and i tell my my, i tell students and i tell people all the time the hard part about a knife isn't the blade it's the handle blade's Blades make sense. If you've ever used a knife for any utility task, skinning or cutting a tomato or, you know, cutting a, a package open, it makes sense. You've got, you know, kind of a long, thin part, and it kind of comes down to an edge part and probably has a tip thingy over there and so forth. Makes sense, right? You can visualize the geometry that goes into actually having a knife.
1: Yeah, a blade is mathematically quantifiable.
3: Right. But then you get into the handle, and there's there's no there's no – Real way to visualize what that is. You've just got to make a couple hundred shitty handles until you realize, oh, that's what I'm doing wrong. And actually come across a handle design that actually works for a human hand.
2: Yeah, And then some of the ones that you don't think work, somebody picks (laughs) up and says, this is the most perfect handle I've ever
1: felt. (laughs) You're like, man. (laughs) Mm -hmm. One Mm -hmm. One of my most popular patterns is uncomfortable for me like when i'm shaping the handle when it starts to feel right i know uh-huh. not to take any more off cuz i'm getting getting on the edge it's the only knife i make but it's uncomfortable for me but i've got kind of odd hands
0: uh-huh.
1: and it's the most popular knife i make and i it's it's uncomfortable for me to use which one is that uh, the echo 5 i thought that's what you were talking about um when i make one for myself the handle is much slimmer and the contours are different mhm uh-huh. um, Versus the one that I make for the public. Uh,
2: How did you get started in this whole knife making thing? Because I believe you said earlier, before we started recording, that you this isn't your full time gig.
3: No, no, I am. So I'm a, a project manager for a construction company. We do, you know, commercial roofing and siding and so forth. Fun, t- fun stuff. Go out in the field and build stuff, measure stuff, all that. Good times, Mm -hmm. Uh, and and I'm blessed to do this as a as something that I get to actually enjoy, and more than anything, I get to turn down projects that I don't want to do, which is really nice, really really nice. Wait, wait, what's that like? It's it's special, but I but I did make a I did uh, make a living knife making full time for about four years. Um, You know, I I can do it. I just kind of really like health insurance. Yeah. Especially when I have four little girls, as yeah. we were previously speaking. Uh,
1: yeah. Dylan, and, When Dylan was on, we talked about that at one point, when we kind of looked around, Dylan, Andy, and I, the only reason, way we could be in the shop together was all three of our wives had corporate jobs that had really good health insurance. Otherwise, none of us could have been making knives full time.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, it takes a lot of the burden off.
2: So how how did you end up getting mixed up and starting to do with the, the knives? Uh, so, um,
3: my, my kind of beginning impetus or the, the reason for this whole journey into knife making was, uh, I, I studied martial arts when I was 17. And, uh, as I, as I kind of grew in my style and and started doing other stuff, I started doing a Japanese sword class. Uh, and you know, if you're going to learn to, to use a sword, you kind of have to own a sword, Mm -hmm. um, and swords that are any use for actually cutting things tend to be, Rather expensive, uh, and I'm cheap. So I kind of looked around and thought, well, I'm a handy guy. I'll just make one. Um, To anybody listening to this who thinks along the same lines, don't do that. Uh, it's 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 really a lot harder than
1: <laughs> than it looks. There's a reason. There's a reason people start learning with pukus and not katanas.
3: Yes, and and you know, I I, I listened to that same advice, and I started out with small knives and kind of grew into it. I didn't. I probably didn't make my first reasonably decent sword for about ten years.
1: So you're self-taught.
3: Yes, yes. I've I've never been to any classes or worked with any. Uh, any actual teachers? I've visited a couple of shops for, you know, an afternoon type of stuff, and I've gone to hammer-ins, and that's pretty much it.
1: So you've made all your own mistakes?
3: Oh yes, and lots of them. <laughs> <laughs> lots of them.
1: Yeah. When when I was
2: learning, I burnt my fingers more times than I can count.
3: Oh yeah, and you you don't stop doing that. You just get to where you don't care anymore, and oh, well, okay. Yeah. I'll have to, put, have to put some Neosporin on that later. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs>
2: My biggest thing was once I had enough money to throw a belt to the side and <laughs> not use it until it was, like, perfectly smooth. Now, that that is one thing that
3: I absolutely just beat into the people that come to my shop to to learn is you, you do not use dual belts. If I see you go to the grinder... With a belt that I know is dull, and you're grinding... Now, we'll use a dull belt to profile or to take a burr off or something, but if you're actually trying to grind a bevel with a dull belt, I'll smack (laughs) you. Because it's just terrible. You you do terrible work. It creates too much heat. You'll never get, you know, grinds to move the way you want it to. You're going to push too hard. It's just... The whole big long list of don't do that. It's stupid.
1: Uh, I wish you were. I wish you were there to smack me when yeah. I was doing it multiple times. Then very mm-hmm. quickly you get a basic level of confidence, and you're wasting time using a dull belt, and it's dangerous. Oh yes, yes. Um, so 100%. as we talked about before, you are a heretic. You urinate all over the third line, uh, third rail of knife making. <laughs>
3: heretic eye
1: you are both (laughs) stock removal and forging is that allowed Mm -hmm. yep
3: um that is that is certainly allowed absolutely did you need a, I mean,
1: a special dispensation from the pope or
3: well yes I, I did have to i did have to make the trek up the up the mountain and see the you know and see the 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 Swami at the top and you know bow my head and and you know cover myself in ashes and sackcloth, but eventually we did you know come to the realization that uh, they're my knives and I'll make them how the i want <laughs> um <laughs>
1: The subtlety, that's what I really love about you. The the nuances about uh, getting to know you.
3: (laughs) And so, and I've had this conversation with, uh, you know, people that I would consider above me in the scale of knife making and people below me in the scale of knife making. People that are starting out and people that, you know, I go to for advice and, and, you know, consideration and thought. And and it, it all comes down to one thing for me. And it's very, very simple. As a knife maker, are you making the best knife that you know how to make? Are you making the knife true to the way you want to make it? And are you being honest with your customers? As long as you're doing those 3, I I don't care at all what you what you're making knife. If you want to make a knife out of railroad spikes, okay. As as long as you're not telling your customers that that railroad spike knife is some, you know, icon of, of, you know, knife making ability and you can use it for, you know, 30 years and never have to sharpen. No, 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 no. Come on. It's the railroad spike. It's 1045 at best. It's moderately hard. If you did a perfect job, you're around 56 Rockwell.
1: Which is, which is vastly superior to all other knives. It's not a
3: great knife. It's a usable knife.
1: It'll roll, not chip. It'll bend, not break. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Exactly. Exactly. Exactly, and and then you start getting into the the snake oil stuff that you know that just pisses me off you know when you start getting the guys that well my knife is superior because I do this and nobody else does I aligned
1: my quench tank with magnetic north and I use a yeah, special combination yeah. go you you
3: go <laughs> jump in your quench tank and tell me which way is north <sighs> you know so you know for me it's it's all about and and not from a a, a you know, money making efficiency standpoint, but from a what is the most, what's the best way to make this knife? You know, and I, so I, nowadays I make a lot of big swords and, and choppers and, you know, large knives and
1: get to the chopper. Yeah,
3: chopper. <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, making a large knife via stock removal is a hugely wasteful endeavor. Yes. Um, it's, it's it, you know, you waste a lot of steel, you waste a lot of belts, you waste a lot of time. Whereas, you know, I can forge that out of bar stock or out of, you know, most of my stuff is W2 and big two and a half inch round bar that I got from Don Hansen years and years and years ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I forge it down into a bar and then forge it into a blade. And I can... I, I I did a video of myself one time streaming, where I forged, ground, and heat treated, a a Japanese sword blade in about six hours. When I was done, it I mean it still needed you know clean up, grind, and polishing and all that, but it was straight, it was true, it was a it was a good. Uh, I think it was twenty six inches of blade length, you know. And trying to do that via stock removal yeah. would have taken me two or three days to do the same same type of work but at the same time if i'm going to make a a hunter you know a little little four inch blade full tang knife no taper in the tang you know just a a utility go out in the woods and cut stuff because i need a knife type of a knife there's not a hill of beans difference to my mind between stock removal And forged on that knife. You know, I'm not saving myself any time. There's not enough metal there that I'm really worried about wasting metal. You know, as long as I'm going to be honest with my customer about this is the way I made it, this is the way, you know, this is the way it's been treated, this is what it's made out of, so forth, then... Who else gets to have any say in this conversation?
1: Well, and you get the flexibility of the artistic techniques uh, from forging. Oh, sure. As well as being able to work with more advanced metals and stock removal.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's a lot of steels that – you know, and, you know, you, you and I, Dan, have, have joked about this a little bit. There's, you know, there's the, the fancy stainless steels like the, the CPM steels and the Carpenter X, XHP steels and metal. Know, stuff like that where, you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, well, you, you can't forge that into a knife. Well, y- yes, you can. Uh, absolutely you can. The problem is, the problem with forging stainless steel is not that it can't be done. It's that most of the time, the people that have the proper technology and resources to take that as forged piece of metal and then properly metallurgically heat treat it, because it's going to take several cycles to undo the damage that you did in the forging and hitting it with a hammer part, and end up with a quality implement, the people that have the the capability of doing that would look at that and go, wait, why am I going to run my oven for three days to anneal and normalize this piece of steel back to a proper grain structure when I could just take the, the steel that started out annealed in the proper grain structure and in an hour and a half have a ground piece that I can heat treat you know so it just doesn't make sense to forge it you can there's there's nothing saying that you can't forge steel
1: uh, most, of my, most of my marketing material says you can't so let's knock that off <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, no, no, no. It's not that you can't. It's that you shouldn't. Uh, it's that you shouldn't
1: I struggle can. with that concept. Because
3: every, <laughs> <laughs> I I know, I know. Um, but every, every bar of steel you have ever seen on a shelf has been forged. Just because I didn't forge it doesn't mean it hasn't been forged. Well, if it can be forged at the at the steel mill, then it can be forged by a guy in his shop with a hammer. It just takes the technology to control your heat.
1: Um, and in some cases, an oxygen-free environment.
3: Well, yes. <laughs> I have argon tanks. I know how to do this.
1: So
2: uh, what what style techniques and machinery do you use in your shop? Uh, I
3: am entirely agnostic on uh, machinery and and styles, I will do whatever is the most appropriate for getting to the finished product that I have. Um, You know, uh, generally speaking, I'll start off, you know, like I said, with a big round bar of W-2 and I'll take it to my hydraulic press and I'll forge it down to, you know, about an inch or so thick by, you know, whatever bar size I'm trying to go for, depending on the size knife. Um, and then I'll switch to the power hammer and keep forging it down because the hydraulic press doesn't do it very efficiently once you get thin. So I'll power hammer it down to, you know, the bar size that I want, and then I'll forge it by hand on the anvil with the hammer and get the shape where I want it. So I'm not wasting a bunch of material. And
2: so you said, you said something interesting there. I use hydraulic stuff for pulling and everything in my, my day job. Sure. Why doesn't the, why doesn't the hydraulic press work well when you start getting thin? Why does a power hammer work well to switch over?
3: So th- there's two things at play here. And, you know, in terms of W-2, one of them doesn't matter. Um, so when, and, but we'll, but it does demat- just dramatically when you start getting into Damascus and trying to be able to control your pattern. But for W-2 or any old billet of steel, um, the hydraulic press moves steel via plastic deformation mm-hmm. by taking the dies contacting the steel and then applying pressure and squeezing the metal. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, in order for that to work, the dyes have to be in contact with the steel. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, as soon as those dyes come in contact with the steel, they start sucking heat out of the steel. Well, the most important uh, tool you have as a blacksmith to get steel to move where you want it to move in the way you want it to move is heat. Well, if you start sucking the heat out of it, it's not going to move. So, that's that's the basic concept that you run into with a hydraulic press. As long as you're doing big thick stuff, there's so much heat in the piece that the dyes can't suck the heat out fast enough <laughs> to make it difficult for the for the hydraulic press to move it.
2: I, the prob- I've seen a lot of people like put hot metal in to get their their dyes and stuff on their hydraulic press really hot. Sure. And that, that, helps. that helps. It helps it or- helps.
3: But nothing is ever going to get around the fact, it, because if you're getting the dies hot enough that that's no longer a factor, you're going to deform the dies as much as you're yeah. going to deform the steel. That's true. Right? Yep. So no matter what you do, you're always fighting that. And, you know, for for my press and the tonnage of my press, once I get below about an inch thick, it it just doesn't work very efficiently. You can do it. You can sit there and, you know, You know, keep working at it, working at it, and you'll eventually get your bar stock down to three-eighths or a quarter of an inch where you want it to be for your finished knife. But you're going to spend a lot of time and a lot of heat and a lot of fuel getting it to do that, whereas once you get down to about a a three-quarters of an inch or an inch or so, the, the power hammer moves it just fine, right? So I can take it. From there, and instead of spending six heats moving it a little bit each time, I can take one heat, go to the power hammer, and, and it's down to you know the bar stock. That no,
1: I, I was going to – I wanted to clarify. You keep talking about working with W-2, mm-hmm. and I'm going to go ahead and brag on you a little bit. <laughs> Steven bought a very large batch of W-2 years ago, mm-hmm. and he is absolutely – Dialed in the heat treat on W two that he gets W two to do stuff that it just shouldn't be able to do. The performance he gets out of that batch mm-hmm. is is incredibly impressive. Thank you. At some point when it wears out, he's going to have to go back to the drawing board. But as long as this batch lasts, mm-hmm. he does stuff with his heat treat that I, I it just shouldn't happen, but he somehow makes it work.
3: Absolutely, I my my journeyman Smith performance knife I made out of W2 and everybody I talked to said, Oh, don't, don't do that. It's too hard. It'll break. Yeah. No, it won't. not if I do it. I, I know how to treat that to make it do what I want it to do.
1: Yeah. Once you've taken that batch out to dinner and you've gotten to know it really well. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and, and you know, I, I, so this, this batch is, you know, Don Hansen got a huge uh, a batch of steel from the Timken factory uh, in Indiana you know fifteen twelve fifteen years ago, and when he got it, I bought a little under a thousand pounds of it from him and i'm I've probably got three hundred left, but I probably went through a hundred pounds before I really kind of figured out the ins and outs of this steel and and how to make it do everything that I wanted it to do in a finished knife.
1: Every batch has got some tolerances, so from one batch to the next. Mm-hmm the heat treat is always going to need a little tweak so since you're working with steel that all came from the same batch mm-hmm. it's all exactly the same and you've mm-hmm. you've been able to perfect that heat treat for that one batch
3: right and but not only that batch but the oven that i use and the heat treat oil that i use because if i take my w2 and i come up to your shop and i program your oven to do what my oven Says it's doing. Yeah, it may not work exactly the same. You know, if my thermocouple isn't calibrated exactly the same as yours, we're going to be off ten fifteen degrees. Which, you know, to to the layperson, ah, 10 ten fifteen degrees. Uh, wh- what could happen? A, a lot happens. A lot happens yeah. in ten degrees when you're talking about heat treating.
2: What what kind of power hammer do you use?
3: Uh, I have a fifty pound little giant old style. Okay. With the the caged bearings, so it's actually torn apart right now. Um, cause I gotta, I gotta re, re re pour the Babbitt bearings for the drive shaft. Um, but I'll probably have it running here in another week or two.
1: You know, the guy's the real deal. You know, a guy's a real deal when he makes the new bearings for his hammer.
3: That's right. That's right.
1: Do they, do they not make the, the stuff or are you just because you
2: can?
3: Uh, so because the little giants were all done with cast iron, um, castings for the body. And they never actually precision milled the the bearing pockets. So instead of instead of using like roller bearings or something, they used babbitt to fill the inconsistencies of the cast iron, and then form it to a mandrel for the the. Um, The actual drive shaft. So if your if your bearing pockets on the on the body of the hammer are off two degrees, or there's a void here, something like that, you can take up that inconsistency versus having a precision machined uh, product.
2: Hmm. Interesting.
3: That was that was typically the way it was done until you got into the 70s or 80s with uh, machinery of that nature. Just because it's it's really a brute force machine. It's not really a a precision mach- mechanical implement.
2: Yeah, I've I've always been really intrigued with power hammers. The the is it the duplex join or whatever they call that? The mm-hmm. um, just how yeah, the, that the
3: wishbone looking thing that makes it actually
2: spring yeah. yeah yeah that that's always amazed me and then they have all the different kinds um mm-hmm. uh, i love looking at some of the the big damascus makers the uh vegas oh, yeah, forge like, and stuff on instagram yeah, yeah, vegas
3: forge uses all the nazelles oh i, I would yeah, I, yeah they have, I, I would do many illegal things to uh <laughs> to get away with one of those hammers how i have nowhere to put it so, and my wife would kill me but i would
2: smile as it happened how many how many pounds do you think one of those things is is that like 500 mean, or more, like the the actual force of the... The head weight.
3: Okay, so yeah. uh, power hammers are measured in, by the TUP, which is the the T-U-P, which is the, the actual head weight, the amount of weight that is slinging itself up and down as it's working. Um, I think the nasal 3B is a 500-pound TUP. Um, the 2B is a 250-pound, and I think, I don't know if he's got a 4, which so is like speaking, a 700-pound. They're huge. Huge.
2: Huge. Yeah. I don't know if you, I don't know if you followed Jesse Savage Blacksmith mm-hmm. also. They had one at the, I believe it was the Center of Metal Arts that was like the world's largest. Yes. One where they had like another guy using a lever, mm-hmm. like pulling on it. Yeah. Uh, that because was pretty it's, it's crazy. It's so
3: big. You can't, you can't operate the controls and operate the, the, the billet at the same time. It's just too big.
1: So speaking yeah, of crazy big crushing hammers. <laughs> <laughs> Yep. Uh, a few years back, there was an incident while you were moving a piece of equipment. It had
3: nothing to do with a the hammer. There was there was no hammer involved.
1: There. No, but it was the best segue <laughs> I could come up with. Um, you were, fair enough. Fair you enough. were moving a large piece of equipment by yes. yourself and wound up crushing your hand and being pinned under the, the piece of equipment?
3: Yes, yes. So you, you, you mentioned earlier I'm basically a shaved Yeti. Um, One of the problems with being six foot five and two hundred and eighty pounds, and being used to the idea, well, I'll just move it. It's not that big. I'm as long as I'm taller than it, I can move it, right?
1: (laughs) Physics is an asshole. The
3: the thing is, the thing is, surface grinders are very top heavy, very top heavy, and once you get it kind of leaned a little bit, uh, it it keeps leaning. And, and, and Once
1: it starts moving?
3: Yeah, and, and 2,500 pounds of surface grinder, once it starts leaning, you, you're not going to win this, this battle of physics. So, yeah, so I was, I was trying to get I, – I was trying to tip my surface grinder up onto a set of rollers so I could roll it into the garage. Um, and, and the operative word there is tip, and I tipped it just fine. Uh, I, I failed to control said tip, um, mm-hmm. and uh, it fell over. And luckily, it, it only pinned my right hand, and I am right-handed, and, and only destroyed the, the middle—I'm or sorry—the ring finger and the pinky finger of my right hand. Uh, they don't bend anymore, which has been really interesting for relearning how to hammer and learning how to, uh, you know, control the the grind, the knife at the grinder, and all the other fun. Th- Actually, over time, the worst part of it has been figuring out how to shape and feel my handles. After the fact, because I don't have a hand that handles anymore.
1: Nobody has a hand like you. <laughs>
3: Nobody has a hand like me. So if I make a knife handle that feels really comfortable <laughs> for me, people gonna look at me funny. Um, so kind of a lot.
1: kind of the two part question on that is how did you how did you come back from that, and how how has it affected your technique?
3: Um, so actually, in terms of so. We we kind of have to answer that in, in the various techniques you know, in terms of blacksmithing, swinging the hammer, it really hasn't affected me very much at all. Um, if anything, it has forced me to learn how to hammer more correctly, uh, because when you're when you're blacksmithing, when you're if you're using your hammer properly. You're not gripping the hammer.
1: You're riding it.
3: Right? You're not actually, you know, you're not squeezing the handle of the hammer. You lift it up and then you throw it at the anvil and you just kind of stay attached to it as it's flying towards the anvil. When it hits the anvil, it's going to bounce and you should catch it and lift it a little bit and throw it back at the anvil. Right? So in terms of, of grip strength and so forth, it hasn't really bothered me at all. For for the the hammer swinging blacksmithing part of of my endeavors, where it really bugs me is grinding. Um, now I think you and I have talked a little bit about my grinding technique. Um, I got uh, I got schooled by Tim Hancock at a at a hammerin at Tannehill State Park years ago at the Alabama Forge Council Batson's hammerin, uh, and he was doing a demo. And what's funny is I, I completely ignored his demo for years, but we'll, we'll get to that. So he was doing a demo where he uses a, a work rest up against his flat platen. And then he has a push stick. And then, you know, he pulls the knife against the belt and pushes it with the push stick. So it's a two handed coordination technique. And, you know, at, yeah. at the time I was just freehand grinding, you know, like most of knife got most, excuse me, like most knife guys do. You, you, kind of hold the handle in one hand and you hold the tip in the other hand and you get this kind of sway dance thing going left and right on the grinder and you you get your grind on and I I'm perfectly capable of doing that I do it just fine but I really don't like to anymore if I can avoid it
1: with the fingers sticking out you occasionally grind the tip off
3: with yes yes the the knuckle on my pinky finger because it doesn't straighten anymore because it's kind of permanently bent with the damage. Um, it hits on things all the time. It, the knuckle is almost always bur- you know, bloody and scarred. It's, it's not pretty. Right. So I, you know, I saw Tim Hancock doing this grinding thing years and years ago and just kind of ignored it for years until I tried to do my first chef's knife. And if you've ever tried to grind something that's at most, you know, three seconds thick at the spine, by holding the handle in one hand and the tip in the other, as soon as you put any pressure against the blade, it's not straight anymore. Yeah. Right. Because it it it's thin. And it flexes. You, you push it against the belt and it just bends. Well, now I'm not grinding against something and you straight.
1: You get funky grind lines and you wind up having a tantrum and throwing it, things. Back yeah. The grinder. Right it
3: drives it drives you absolutely crazy. No, I have no idea And what, what I that's found like. was. <laughs> well, what I found was that's
2: why what, that's what you need to get a disc grinder, Dan.
3: <laughs> disc grinders are fantastic, but they they'll do the same thing to you. Yeah. Um, but that's that's what I found with using this this flat grinding technique, where I'm pushing with the push stick, so my pressure is always at the center of my belt. Yeah. And the and the the blade just comes through on that pressure line. So I have one hand that controls pressure and one hand that controls movement, and Works just fine. Now, the problem that I came into with my hand being kind of mangled um, is it's it, I had to come up with like weird angles. And I've got a couple of, of custom shaped push sticks for my right hand so that I can actually hold it because unlike the hammering part, this is I right, hold this right here and push and, and don't stop and you have to push very consistently through the motion or it messes up your grind lines and all that kind of stuff. So I have had to do a lot of kind of customized tooling if you will for my grinding techniques to to kind of get my right hand to do what I need it to do and end up with the quality of product that I I need to do.
1: I get to see that.
3: Yeah. Oh it's it it'll it'll change your life for doing thin stuff. For doing big Bowie knives doesn't make a big difference. It does not work well on swords. Yeah, unfortunately. Uh, just cuz they're they're so big. You just you, i run out of arm length on a on a full-size sword. For doing chef's knives, it is just the best.
1: Yeah, I, uh, I we've already said that I need to come down and and learn with you, but uh that would
3: uh Yeah, man. I've got beer.
1: Yeah, cuz I, <laughs> I struggle especially the like when I start getting into the 116th inch at the spine doing the 10-inch knives. It's a fight. I try to get mm-hmm. my thumbs as close mm-hmm. as I can to each other while I'm holding handle and tip and try to put counter pressure, mm-hmm. but it's,
3: it's, it, it's hard.
2: <laughs> I I use the, the push stick work rest method uh, quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And then I, I go back and forth between my disc grinder and my, my two by 72. So I'll do like 60 grit on my two by 72. Then I'll do a, 120 on my disc grinder till I get all the scratches out in a completely different angle uh, mm-hmm. scratch pattern. And then And then go back to the two by 72 and go back and forth quite a few times.
3: Mm-hmm. Now for my, for my chef's knives, I do a complex, uh, convex geometry. Um, basically what I'll do is I'll grind three planes, uh, down the, down the, the bevel, if you will, of the knife, and then blend those into one complete curve and, you know, depending on what style of chef's knife I'm doing and what I'm intending the, the user to cut with it, uh, you know, meat knives, you have a different con- convexity, uh, versus vegetable knives versus, you know, uh, uh, starches and stuff like that, hard vegetables and soft vegetables and le- leafy vegetables and all the, all the fun things and fish and red meat and boning. And, uh, anyways, all that stuff. Uh, and you can, you can really kind of customize the convexity of the blade so that it it's going to cut that most uh, uh, efficiently in, for the end user. Or you can just kind of do a general purpose knife that does everything well, but nothing super.
1: And that really mm-hmm. comes down to the user. Mm-hmm. Yes. You can give somebody a Ferrari to run go get groceries, and it'll be a horrible, horrible mistake.
3: <laughs> yes. Wh- whenever possible, whenever a, a, an actual chef... Uh, contacts me and, and asks for a knife. I, I ask him first of all, you know, what do you cook? As in, you know, what kind of cuisine are you cooking? You know, French cuisine? Are you cooking? You know, Asian? Are you cooking? You know, South American or Latin or you know, what what type of stuff are you cooking? What are you going to use this knife for? Proteins or vegetables or you know, so so forth. And I ask him to send me a, a video of him cutting in his in his kitchen the way he wants to, you know, like what's, what's his posture. How does he use the knife? Where's he gripping the knife? You know, is he using a, a rock chop or a slice or a forward slice or a rearward slice or, you know, all, all those fun little things, because I want more than anything. When I sell a knife to somebody, I want them to pick up that knife and grin every time they pick it up. You know, I don't want them picking up the knife and going, eh, it works. Uh, nope. Not with my name on it. That's not how I want that to be.
1: That's why I do pin-up girl handles. <laughs> that way, I know they're going to smile every time they pick that knife up.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. What are What are some of your most must have tools in your shop that you you enjoy working the most? It doesn't have to be uh, be sentimental. It can be.
3: I mean I, I I have I have you know I have my love for all of my tools, um, but you could take all of them away. And I'd be happy to keep making knives except for my grinder. I have a three-horsepower KMG grinder that I got 12 years ago, three-horsepower VFD grinders. It's a nice horsepower grinder. Um, And I can, you know, when I want to show off for for new kids, I can make a knife completely by hand with no power tools every bit as quickly as I can without or with my power tools. I I sweat more and I get blisters, uh, and it's not nearly as much fun, but I can do it. I mean, so much, every, every single operation of making a knife goes back to that grinder in some form or another. So, yeah, you you can't have my grinder.
2: So do you just have one grinder or do you have multiple ones kind of set up Uh, with the different operations?
3: Uh, I, so I, for myself have one grinder, I have that three horsepower KMG. I have a couple of other grinders and I have a disc grinder, um, that I have. uh, So the the disc grinder I got from KMG and I have made myself a couple of grinders over the years that they work just fine. They're, they're, you know, you know, just welded together iron to, to kind of assimilate uh, KMG because I want to use the same tool arms. Mm -hmm. Um, mostly because again, I'm six foot five and my (laughs) grinder is set up for me. And, and most of my students are not six foot five, and they don't like grinding at their shoulder height. So,
2: or their head, or their head height.
3: Right, right. So rather than you know standing on a crate, um, you know we've got a couple other grinders that they can use. That you know they don't need three horsepower. They're not pushing as hard as me. Um, you know stuff like that.
2: Do you really feel like you get get a lot of benefit out of having the extra horsepower? I've oh, a, i have got i have got a I've got a two horse horsepower motor and i feel like i I, or the belt slips on my wheel a lot more than yeah i
3: I would take five if i could figure out how to shoot water on there because i can stall that motor
1: especially Hmm. when i'm profiling uh particle steel and that sort of stuff Hmm. when i start to lean into it i'll seize it up oh yeah
2: my mine it just spins on the on the the belt and the wheel just spin Uh, I
3: I went through uh, some draconian measures to get yeah. enough tension on that belt, and it doesn't do that anymore. Hmm. And it just it just bogs down the motor. There
1: mm-hmm. may be some additional springs and a pry bar for tensioning uh, my uh, grinder.
3: Mm mm-hmm. hmm. All right. Yeah, I I can stall a three ho- three horsepower grinder no problem if I'm if I try to now I, I don't try to. Uh, I've gotten really good at riding that line where I'm pushing it. Just hard enough that it can keep up with me.
1: Just enough so the, uh, the pitch of the motor changes, but it doesn't slow down.
3: Yep. Yep. That's the feeling right there. If I push just a little harder, I lose belt speed.
1: What would you say defines your style as a maker?
3: <sighs> um, man, I don't know. It, it has changed so much over the years to, to actually answer that question. Honestly, it is pretty hard. Um, I can, I can more reasonably tell you the, the makers I pull inspiration from and, and try and not copy, but, uh, you know, try and incorporate their same, same feel and look into my work. Um, you know, Burt Foster, uh, Jason Knight, uh, Don Fogg are, are some of the guys that I've always looked at and gone, if I can make a, a knife that looks like theirs, I'm doing good. And it's, and it's different things. Like I don't like Jason Knight's blade shapes as much. I like Burt Foster's blade shapes, but I don't like Burt Foster's handle shapes as much. I like Jason Knight's handle shapes and I don't, you know, you know, that kind of stuff. Like it's kind of a a mix and match grab bag of, well, if I could take that, that blade shape with, with that guy's Damascus and, and that guy's handle and stick them all in one knife, that would make me happy. Most of the knives I tend to make tend to be, you know, large ish Bowie knives. Um, and that's more than anything. It's just cause those are to me in my shop. Those are the most fun to make that I can actually sell. If I could sell swords, I would make, make nothing but swords for the rest of my life. But you just, there's not enough market for swords to, to really do that. But swords are a, a very serious challenge. Uh, And a lot of fun. It it
1: turns out swords are really expensive and there's not that many people that are are willing to. pay. Right.
3: Right. I've I've had a lot of people over the years. Hey, man, can you make me this sword? Yes, it'll be thirty five hundred dollars. Oh, I'll get back to you. It turns Mm -hmm, out most
1: of the people that want swords get frustrated and just make them themselves.
3: (laughs) I know. Right. (laughs) And, you know, I've I've had guys come to my shop that, you know, I want to make a sword. Okay, here you go. Let's make a sword. And I'll I'll walk them through it. And three months later, when there's still no skin growing back on their fingertips, because the calluses, they go, (laughs) man, swords are hard. I Mm. told you. (laughs) I told you.
1: Just had to make your own mistakes. So we Mm -hmm. are about to turn the corner and turn this into another marathon uh, podcast. Or... To my our listening audience out there, if Kyle breaks in with a voiceover over this is as much as I 'm gonna edit in any one period, S- suck it. The reason is we're about to start talking about the mass um, and there's a couple other questions we wanted to get to, but uh-huh. this one's in the middle. Um, so again, if y'all if you get a break. And Kyle does some sort of vo- voiceover. It's because there's a lot more material we're going to get to and we can't stay up till two o'clock in the morning. To get- well, we can, but Kyle can't spend another two weeks editing one show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Damascus, Damascus, forge welding, pattern welding. Oh, uh,
3: Damascus. What? Yes. Yes, nothing is more polarizing in the custom knife industry so, than Damascus, and I got a lot to say.
1: <laughs> Damascus and Damas. Yes. Damas is a technique, yes. and Damascus is that technique that was made in Damascus? Uh, that...
3: it's a sort, of, sort of, kind of. So Damas is, nice. is there's a lot of um, bastardization and inbreeding of terminology when you start getting into Damascus
1: in the knife industry i would not have expected that
3: <laughs> yeah it's it's terrible i i know i know i know right um so and and here's the the crux of the problem yeah. and we're i hope you're a history nerd because here we go way um, way way right. back so in, in
1: in a galaxy far far yeah, away way
3: way back so <laughs> so in the you know ten hundred eleven or 1100s 1200s early you know early middle ages mm-hmm. and so forth um Steel was kind of hard to get, right? So, you know, you'd have the, the smiths all in Europe that would, would make something actually in, in technique, very similar to the way the Japanese make steel. Um, you know, they would they would make this, this big chimney looking thing, and they'd pour iron ore down the top and, and kind of cook it and cook it and cook it, and they'd end up with this big spongy thing, and they'd take it out, and they'd smack it down into stuff and kind of refine it back into it, right? You'd get kind of steel that way. Well, a vastly superior product was available from Damascus, the city in what's now Syria. Is Damascus, is, and that was actually a crucible product. So they would take a, a graphite crucible or a, a clay crucible. No, they wouldn't have done a graphite crucible. That's how we do it. That's how we do it now to do the same technique. But they would take a, a pottery crucible ceramic and they would you know fill it up with the iron ore and they'd put a little bit of uh, organic in there to create the carbon and they'd put blood steel yeah and they'd put sand or something on top to flux it and seal it and they would put it in this this big uh smeltery thing and they'd cook it for (sighs) depends on which historian you talk to but usually 20 to 40 hours you know so a couple days and they would just cook it and cook it and cook it and it would actually get molten and because of how slowly it would cool the carbon would uh would carburize and you would get um you would get dendrites and you'd get cementite uh, structures and you'd get this patterning in the steel that at the time would would be called watered steel because if you look at it it kind of looks like water running right that is a a a a, a facet of the way light catches against the various layers and angles of that cementite and martensite and perlite particles and the the structure within and the and the and the carbides
1: so so that wasn't a folded steel that was that was no for-
3: no that was a crucible steel oh. that was a crucible steel so they would get an actual ingot yeah and they would they now you have to be very, very, very cautious when you first start forging it because it is very red hard, uh, which in blacksmithing terms means it's very, very difficult to move it at heat. So, you know, when it first comes out, it looks like a big hockey puck and you have to very, very gently start moving it. And as it as you heat it and move it and heat it and move it, it, it slowly gets more and more uh, comfortable with being moved. And eventually it'll turn into a piece of bar stock and then you can forge it from there fairly normally
1: uh, and the pattern in that is the alternate layers of structure in the steel yes okay yeah
3: so it was it was a homogeneous product meaning if you cut a chunk off of one side and a cut a chunk off of the other side and metallurgically tested the alloy contents it'd be pretty much exactly the same uh and that was really particular in, in, the, in the time, in the history, because there, that was the only culture that was doing steel in that fashion. Um, you know, if you look at Japanese metallurgy of the same time frame, they were just really getting off the ground with uh, the, the type of steel that we know of as a katana, where they were making sponge steel and folding it on itself, you know, to create thousands of layers, really just to homogenize the steel because it was so non-homogenous when they started. Um, and same thing on a in with different techniques but the same end product in a lot of the european stuff side note that's why the <laughs> ulfbrecht sword is so weird to look at it from a historical yeah. perspective and you know a, a lot of a lot of knife and sword fanboys will oh the ulfbrecht was the is the best sword ever no it's not No, it's not. If
1: anybody doesn't know what Stephen's talking about, there's a great documentary. It's a a Viking sword. Mm
3: -hmm. On Nova. Um, Rick Furrier actually did it. Rick Furrier and Kevin Cashin are the two Smiths that did that. And I've I've actually got a DVD somewhere that you would just cream over. Um, Rick Furrier went on a uh, a tour – of various museums in uh, England and the Middle East, and so forth, with the curators of the museum, he had backroom access. So I've got pictures of thousands of old Middle Eastern swords that were all this, what we now call woots uh, steel, uh, and very, very fine pictures. Fantastic stuff, really cool. But Rick is a, a an absolute titan of the the process of figuring out how they did. These, these historic swords, uh, and he's, he's kind of really geeked out on that. And it's really cool to see. But so he did this video for Nova on the making of the Ulfbrecht sword and, you know, knife and sword geeks will, will, will look back and say, Oh, the, the Ulfbrecht sword was, is is this amazing sword and nothing could ever beat it. No, that's, that's totally not true. You know, I could take a, a piece of bar stock off the shelf, give it a halfway passably awesome heat treat and beat the crap out of the Ulfbrecht sword.
1: Nothing could beat it back then, what, but now ain't then. yeah.
3: Right, now ain't then. Right. What's what's so interesting, what's so amazing about the Ulfbrecht sword is they shouldn't have technically been able to do it. If you look at the sword, you look at the construction methods of the sword, you look at the materials the sword was made of, they didn't have a way to do that. And we don't we don't really know how they pulled it off. Right? Because they had steel that was essentially homogeneous the way our modern yeah. crucible steel was homogeneous, so, but they didn't do it that way. They didn't have any way to do it that way. Right? Some so, it's,
1: Smith, it's sometimes that, hey, it's foreign hold my mead, watch this. <laughs> right, right, pretty much, right? So it's, and then they sobered up and said, how the hell did we do yeah, that?
3: Right. So looking, looking at it through the lens of what was technologically available in that time frame, that sword is just, how, how did you do that? It'd be like, it'd be like, you know, going back to the, the cave drawings that you see in, in like Russia, I think they're in Russia. Where are the, where are the cave drawings? Like the caveman drawings.
1: Uh, uh, There's some, and I thought it was France. Right?
3: Yeah. So it's, it's, anyways. But it'd be like
1: the ones with the DeLorean in it. Yeah,
3: exactly. It'd be like going back and seeing a car in those cave drawings. Like, what? How did they? They didn't have cars. Why is there a picture of a car? Right. But seeing a picture of a car now is like, well, you know, it's, it's a car, right? It's, it's nothing impressive now, but in the context of the timeline, you go. How did they do that? They shouldn't have been able to do that. Anyways, side topic. So, we have this crucible product coming out of the city of Damascus, which is where this confusion keeps coming from. Is the city of Damascus was making this far superior technological product that was an actually homogeneous crucible steel. Right? So... Throughout the entire ingot, it's all the same alloying content. It's all the same carbon content. It's all homogeneous, which you know, in in knife making, homogeneous is really important if you want a quality product.
1: Yeah, okay. it's important for the middle of the blade to be the same as the the front and the back.
3: Yes, absolutely.
1: Right. Um, so, so what we think of as modern. What we think of now as Damascus is is folded steel, but that's not what Damascus is.
3: Well, so it's it's a it's a just, it's a definition without a distinction. Okay. Um, and, and so I, I have to be careful in this kind of conversation because
1: oh no no i'm but, getting you to commit to something no, 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 no. on air <laughs> yeah, yeah,
3: yeah 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 no
1: i so <laughs> let, me, let me finish um
3: so i have to be careful with this conversation because of my father um growing up my dad was was a very semantically oriented guy you you say what you mean and you be precise in your speech so that when we communicate we understand what we're talking
1: about words have specific meanings
3: right right and and You know, uh, one of these days I'm going to get kicked in the nuts for it. But I drive my wife crazy because she'll start she'll start talking and I'll be like, I I have no idea. I need a proper noun. Tell me who we're talking about. She doesn't tell me who you're talking. I I know it's a friend of yours, but which one? I need a proper. I don't know how you haven't been
1: kicked in the nuts yet.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Right. So that's you know, I'm looking at the Damascus conversation through that lens of my upbringing. And words have meaning right? So, you know, Damascus in our current culture of knife making, Damascus means anything that is not monosteel, right? So people will use it for uh, damasteel, people will use it for um, woots, people will use it for san mai, people will use it for anything that is not a piece of bar stock mono steel steel and it can get very very confusing to people who aren't you know as as technical in their speech because they'll go well damascus should should yeah. be a term that describes the technique made to use it right so that's where you start getting into pattern welded steel versus Damascus. Right. Um, so pattern welded steel as we use it today was, was more pretty much, um, uh, uh, I I hate to say invented, but more innovated, uh, by Bill Moran and some, some guys that he was running with up in Maryland, uh, when he kind of started the ABS and he was trying to find, uh, just a cool aesthetic look to, to kind of elevate the, 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 finished product of his knife. That's
1: when you start seeing the raindrop and the ladder and the herringbone and...
3: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it was and it was simply taking two similar steels, but slightly different alloying contents, and you know welding them together through a blacksmithing process where you're getting fusion down the entire layer of the steel, and then you know manipulating it through that plastic deformation to create some pattern um, and you know we've we've really kind of gone deep in the rabbit hole as knife makers these days and how you can make those patterns and some of the crazy stuff you can do to your steel to get. That, you know, an outcome. There's guys that do portraiture in, in, you know, pattern welded steel, you know, there's guys that do, you know, spiders and skulls. There's guys that do, I, I've done, a, a, I did a set of wedding rings with a mountain range on it where you can actually see the mountains, you know, and just stuff like that. You know, there's, there's all kinds of different patterns and stuff you can do, but it can be very confusing because any non-homogeneous welded together, uh, amalgamation of steel can be called Damascus, yep. and nobody can really tell you you're wrong, right? So it's, it's a very difficult word to use with any actual distinction. And Damascus is, is kind of the process of making it. It's just the process of ending with Damascus. Um,
1: which technically isn't the folded steel that we all think it is.
3: Right, no. So modern-made Damascus of that nature is purely an aesthetic thing. It's just to make it look cool. I'm sorry if I step on any toes, but there is no technological superiority to taking two different steels and welding them together.
1: There may have been in the 1200s, but that time has passed.
3: Oh, oh, certainly. Oh, absolutely. There was an advantage to doing that back then because you had, you had so much junk in your raw material product that you had to fold it on itself to work those impurities out. Well, when I, when I go Aldo, and get 1084 and 15 and 20, there's no impurities that I'm trying to work out. Those are pure steels, right? They're clean. So all I'm doing is marrying together clean steel to clean steel to make some cool pattern. Right. But you look at, you know, the old Viking swords, which were patterned. You can you can see patterns in the in the decay of those swords. You can look at the Japanese swords and look at all the different, uh, you know, grain structures of the patterns of how it was folded and, you know, so forth. They were doing that for a functional reason. They were doing that to improve the quality of their steel. There's there's no improving the quality of steel in my shop. When I start with clean, high-quality bar stocks.
1: And in ancient times, the more it was folded, the more it was worked. So the more impurities were driven out, the purer the steel.
0: Mm-hmm. So, right. so the desire of
1: a 500-folded blade was that steel is, go, is more likely to be pure, more pure than mm-hmm. a 200-fold
3: Right. And and that's another, you know, the terminology you're using is another thing that really confuses people. Um, is, as you're saying, it's a thousand folds. Well, that doesn't mean the Japanese Smith sat there and folded it a thousand times. You fold it once and now you've got two layers. Then you fold it again, you've got four, then eight, then 16, then 32, then 64, then 128, then 256, then 512. It gets to a thousand real quick, right? Because every time you fold it, you double it. Well, a lot of times when they fold it, they would triple fold it. They would, or they would, you know, cut it into four pieces or, you know, it wasn't always a a two part fold. So you can get to a thousand layers in four welding operations pretty easily if you're, if you're doing it properly. Right. But you would end up with a thousand layers.
1: I think we lost Kyle. I'm here.
3: (laughs) He may be asleep.
1: Oh, okay. It's just a lot to take in, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) All right. So pattern welding, forge welding, mechanically, that's all the same process.
3: Well, no. Forge welding is the process of creating pattern welding.
1: Okay. So.
3: Okay. So from a blacksmith's perspective, if I have two bars that are four feet long and I need one bar that's eight feet long, well, I'll just weld them together and I can do that. And, you know, you heat the two ends up until they're nearly molten and you squish them together and they'll bond. If, you, if, you, if everything is clean properly and everything is at the proper heat, they'll stick to each other. No problem. It's a, it's a fairly simple and straightforward technique once you understand the fundamentals of it. Okay. Now Damascus is created via a forge welding process where I'm going to take you know a a, a stack of steel um, and I'm going to put the whole stack of steel in my forge. I'm going to bring the whole stack of steel up to about 1800 degrees. And I'm going to take the whole stack of steel and squish it in my power hammer or my press. And, you know, force all those layers together as they're nearly molten and, and force contact. Once you've forced contact at that type of temperature where you've got enough uh, uh, thermal activity <laughs> in, the, uh, in the atoms of the steel, they will bond to each other. Okay? So – Forge welding is, is the process by which Damascus is made. Damascus is kind of the, the end product. Um, so you start with that billet of all the layers and you get it in there and you get it hot and then you squish it and then you manipulate it in some fashion. You can fold it back on itself and increase the layer count or you can twist it or you can, you know, cut grooves in it or you can, you know, squish it on a bias and create, you know, flower petals, all kinds of different things you can do to it to change the layering in the Damascus to create your final product
1: is is there a terminology difference between t- uh, I'm going to try to phase this correctly taking two similar steels and folding them over each other versus taking the same type of steel and folding it Does that make it's like some <laughs> guys will use um, like a nickel a nickel steel in, in and te- another type of steel and then some guys will take Mm-hmm. It's all 1095. It's just 1095 folded on itself.
3: Mm-hmm. So uh, you're going to kind of get a little esoteric in the, in the metallurgy of what steel does when it's at 1800 degrees. But um, as far as the techniques and the skills and the tools and the materials, uh, there's no difference between those two conversations. Now, your end product will look significantly different. Uh, so one of my favorite Damascus blends is 1084 and 15 and 20, right? So 1084 is a is a hypereutectoid steel, and and it tends to have a, a fairly large amount of manganese, um, not not a ton, but enough to make it f- fairly deep hardening. But what's nice about the manganese is the way that steel acts when exposed to an etchant in its finished place, or in its finished condition, because it tends to darken and and, and really etch aggressively. Countering that, we have 15N20, which is 1075. Uh, again, now, 1075 isn't technically a hyper It's right on the, the hypo- and hyper-eutectoid line. Um, but it's very, very similar carbon content. It's very, very similar alloying content, except... Instead of having manganese, it has nickel. Well, nickel does the opposite of manganese when exposed to etchant in its finished product. It resists the etch. Uh. So, So you get these two steels and you marry them together and you form them all out into what you want. And then when you etch it, the etchant, the acid, eats away at the 1084 but doesn't eat away at the 15 and 20. And what you end up with is that visual look where it's very, uh, very distinct that the 15 and 20 layers are shiny and the 1084 layers are dark and you get that really bold, hard Damascus pattern. Um, now, when you start talking about making Damascus, you need to be very, very cognizant of not only the, the types of steels that you're using, but the way those steels are heat treated Um, I I know a lot of guys that use 1095 or W2 or W1 uh, in their mix with 15 and 20 instead of 1084, and I really don't like to do that.
1: 1095 is a little – comes to heat treat.
3: Um, 1095 is a little – 1075 or 15 and 20 in this conversation is is much more forgiving, but the the thermal movement of them is a little more aggressive – of a difference than I want. One of the reasons that 1084 and 15 and 20 do so well is because they are so similar in their, in their heat treat regimen. Um, You know, you, they both austenize at the same temperature. They both quench with the same speed. You've got about a a three second oil will do just fine. Um, Or, you know, a, a simple water oil or a simple water quench will do just fine. Uh, they're very, very resilient steels, and they marry together very well. Whereas if you're mixing 1095 and 15 and 20, 1095, W1, W2, all have pretty much the same carbon content. Um, W2 versus W1 or 1095 has vanadium in it, whereas W1 and 1095 don't. One of the problems with marrying those to 15 and 20 is... 1095, W1, W2, yeah. they want a sub-second quench, uh, and, and when we say that as knife makers, what we mean is, you know, you're going to bring it up to your austenizing temperature, which is the temperature at which all of the carbon can move around in the iron matrix of your steel, right? So you, you're, you're dissolving carbides, and the iron is free to kind of move, or the carbon is free to move around where it needs to, and then...
1: And it's your, your most dense structure.
3: Uh, no, no, no. No, austenite is your, is your, I'm
1: sorry. I'm I'm sorry. I thought you said Martin's. No, 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 we're getting to Martin's We're getting there. Right. So austenite
3: is, is the most open structure. Right. And yeah. You know, as, as, as anybody who's, who's played with thermal expansion will tell you when you heat something up, it gets larger. When you cool it down, it gets smaller. Right. So physically the steel gets larger and that's the, the iron kind of expanding and letting the carbon move around in, very gross layman's terms. I know we're going to get some kind of an email from a metallurgist saying, he's lying. He's wrong. Uh, uh, yeah,
1: That's what Kyle no. is for. Uh, all of the hate mail goes directly to his email, to for we're <laughs> awesome, awesome. Yeah. so we're good.
3: Awesome. Awesome. So we're not talking to doctorate metallurgists. We're trying to explain in terms that are understandable. right? So the carbon-
1: And we've got our own metallurgist to argue their metallurgist. It'll be a whole other episode. Yes.
3: We'll do it. We'll have a Twitter <laughs> battle. <laughs> So, anyway, so austenizing temperature for 1095, you know, and 1084 is about 30 degrees different, right? And 1075 and 1084 are about the same. 1450, 1455 is just fine. Whereas W1, W2, 1095, if you're not at least 1480, you're not really going to get austenite, right? You're not really going to get up to that temperature where the carbon is moving around and can form the new structures that you're trying to form. Right, so you've got that mismatch. So now I'm I'm grossly overheating the fifteen and twenty if I'm going to mix it together, or I'm grossly underheating the the ten ninety five alloy. You know, I've got to pick one. Right? To, to heat treat properly.
1: Either way, you're taking a chance of really blowing right, your heat treat.
3: Right, right, right. And, and, you you know, you can't just split the middle. That's not going to work out in your favor either because now you've got a suboptimal heat treat on both yeah. instead of just one. Now you've got a 100% you know?
1: chance of being wrong rather than a 50%. Chance.
3: <laughs> right. Let's just kind of blow that out the water right now and commit to being wrong. All right? You know? So that's – You
1: know, you just summed up most of my adult life.
3: <laughs> exactly. Um, so that you know, that's one of the reasons that the most common mixes of Damascus are 1084 and 15N20, and, and O1 and L6 are because they are so similar in their heat treat properties that they will not tend to tear themselves apart. Now, with O1 and L6, there's a there's a, a higher chance of the steel's auto hardening after the welding process and tearing themselves apart, which is no fun. Um, So you you really don't want to play with those until you've got the proper tools to anneal those directly after forging. Um, Otherwise, you'll come out and find it split like a banana.
1: That sounds like a voice of (sighs) experience.
3: That's no fun.
2: (laughs) So That'd be pretty disheartening.
3: Yes, absolutely. That is very annoying.
1: You know, that did not go nearly as badly as I thought it was going to be. I really expected some – I expected that to take about another 45 minutes and there to be a little more confusion and some heresy, maybe one of us struck by lightning.
3: Do you want to go deeper? I got deeper.
1: Maybe we could do a Damascus <laughs> Part 2 episode. Um, but, absolutely. Would you be up for coming back in uh, in a couple of episodes shit. and doing like a deep dive into Damascus, yeah. like forge welding, you know, the, the mechanics behind it?
3: Mm-hmm. Actually talking about the techniques, the processes, the absolutely. It, yeah, that, that would take – if you want to get into techniques, processes, tips and tricks, stuff like that, not even getting into patterning, just how to actually get steel to stick together, you know, that's that can be an hour's conversation all by itself.
1: Yeah, I, I'm absolutely down for that. Cool. Yeah. So we, uh, we're going to skip to the last few questions because, as it is, Kyle is going to give me hell about editing this one th- this week. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, You've uh you've pretty much got two lines of knives, if I remember correctly. You've got a custom line and a mm-hmm. mid tech or a production.
3: Yes. Mm-hmm. It's a you no, know, it's a full production. Um it, the the knives are actually being fabricated and, and manufactured um for us, yes.
1: And and who is us?
3: Uh so us is uh Feral Knives. Um, uh, so me and, uh, and a, a friend of mine, uh, Ryan Housley, uh, started up feral knives. Basically what it was, um, so after I was on Forged in Fire, um, he contacted me, wanted to take a class, say, hey, I want to make knives, that looks fun. So he came over and, and we took the class and, and, uh, kind of got talking about it. And at the time I was really, really bogged down in making the same knife over and over, and over and it just you know fifty, a hundred, just the same knife over and over and over, and it, it was just it was killing me, in a in a creative sense. And uh, so we got to talking and and kind of got uh, uh kind of got down the road of, yep. well, why don't we just kind of get White River is the company that's actually manufacturing the knives. They do a fantastic job. Shout out!
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, they did my uh, my fish and fowl, and they oh, do yeah. blades for my my mid tech chef knives.
3: Yeah, they do a, a absolute bang up quality job. I have been nothing but impressed with the the product and the and the experience with them. Uh, but anyway, so we we got to talking about you know, man, i I'd, I'd really like to not have to make that knife fifty more times this year. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so it kind of grew from there and uh And started talking about you know what what is it about a Stephen Fowler knife that would attract somebody over you know somebody else 's knives and and it really came down to the 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 concept and the way I approach handles um <laughs> and are,
1: are are we going to get into the Bob Lovelace conversation after all
3: no 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 no, 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 not at all well, I'll save that for your I'll save that for later um but uh you know i i'm I'm so particular about the way my knife operates in your hand you know you you go to you go to a sporting goods store, you go to you know a place that sells production knives we're talking about you know sub two hundred dollar knives. On a shelf at you know uh, 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 some outfitter store,
1: assembly line made.
3: Right, right, not not handmade knives. And across the board, they just have terrible handle ergonomics. You know, even even when they're made with high quality steels, even when they're heat treated by Paul Boss, even when the the piece of there's absolutely nothing technically to say wrong about the blade, you don't want to use it cause it's uncomfortable and the handle sucks and it's too heavy and it's, you know, all these kind of things.
1: Contours are expensive to make.
3: Contours are expensive to make, but if you're going to bother doing it, do it right. You know? Um, so that, that was kind of our, our big, uh, our big push in the, in the concept of why is a feral knife different from a, you know, a, a buck or a cold steel or a, um, you know, a bench made or, you know, pick your other production knife maker. Um, in that the the handle shape is pretty much exactly the handle shape that I've spent fifteen years figuring out how to shape. You know, if you go back to our earlier conversation, the blade is is fairly simple to visualize and understand, but you've got to screw up a lot of handles, <laughs> a lot of handles. <laughs> Before you kind of figure out, if I put this lump here and I kind of groove that in right there and put a curve right there, man, this gets really comfortable really quick, right? But it's a lot harder to make that handle than to just put scales on it and round over the top and bottom of the, the scales and, you know, hey, there's your handle. like well,
1: A quarter radius on the on the outside and you're good to go.
3: Right, right. And that's, yeah. you know. There's so much more to be offered in in a functional tool that you're going to put in your hand and go out in the woods and do stuff with or, you know, go out on a job site and do stuff with or go out into a commercial kitchen and do stuff with that, you know, you, you just – you're not going to use a knife that's uncomfortable to use.
1: Well, and it's less fun to use.
3: Yeah, exactly. You know, you, you might use it because you've got nothing else, but eventually you're going to come across something that's better and you're going to move to that. Right, and I I never want that to be the problem of the handle. You may come across and think, well, I like this blade shape a little bit more. Okay, fine. You know, I, I have my personal philosophies of how my blades should be shaped and how the curvature should be used in in you know the various applications of the knives. And I I have no problem whatsoever with the customer going, I don't care yeah. for that shape like that. Yeah. Okay, then uh, you you're probably not going to buy my knife. Have a nice day. I, and I, I'm, I, that's not a mean thing, and I, I tell people that are looking in, to get into, you know, buying knives, go find a knife maker, whoever he is, that makes knives that look and feel and cut the way you want a knife to cut, and buy that guy's knives. Don't go to a knife maker who you saw in a magazine and go, hey... I I saw you in the magazine, you're probably famous, can you make this knife for me that I designed that looks nothing like anything you've ever made? Because, I mean, he may may be able to kind of make that knife, but if it doesn't kind of match up with his philosophy on how a knife should be used, it's never going to feel the same as if it's, you know, as if it syncs with his philosophy on how that knife should feel should use should balance should you know ergonomically fit in your hand all these things the
1: the two hardest things i've found to teach young makers is how to price their work Mm -hmm. and how to be able to say i'm not the right maker for you
3: Mm -hmm. yep absolutely and i've i've you know i haven't turned down a lot of of offers like that but i've turned down enough for it to be a statistic where people have come and hey i have this drawing I'm not making that knife. This guy over here, this buddy of mine, he makes knives that look a lot like that. You'd be a lot happier talking to him. you know. And I always, I always try and point them to somebody who can actually make their knife because I want them to have their knife, but it's and not going to have my name on it.
1: And I don't want to offend them. I want to do it in a nice way, but yeah, my experience absolutely. has taught me both of us are going to be happier if I don't make this.
2: Right, right. One of the other frustrating things is when you get somebody says, "I uh, want this person's knife, but uh, uh, it costs too much,
1: so I want you to make yeah. it." I'm like, uh, oh, that's not, not going to be any cheaper." You want one of his knives? Yeah, no, that's Go a to flat him. no every time. Yeah, uh, that's a flat no. There are very few things that yeah. I will just absolutely yeah. end a conversation on, and that's one of.
3: Them. You know, now I I know you know. It, 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 from my personal perspective, I have no problem with somebody coming to me and saying, "Hey, this guy made a knife." That I really like, but I really prefer your style. Will you look at his knife and kind of inspire yourself off of that knife? You know what I mean? Not, not make a copy of it, but how would you make a knife of a similar style or similar size or, you know, that kind of thing that doesn't bother me at all because then at least, you know, they're coming to me because they think my design or my philosophy is a better fit for their end use. Fabulous.
1: Awesome. Let's talk. Yeah, I I want a Canadian belt knife, but I want it made sure in your style. Absolutely.
2: Well, speaking back to your, uh, you liking to do handles a lot. What are some of your favorite handle materials to use?
1: I'm going to guess not wood. Oh
3: no. (laughs) Well, uh, it it depends on why, what you mean by my favorite. Um, my my favorite to look at my favorite to work with or my favorite to use yes you know exactly so you know i i mean i'm 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 a big fan of you know the aesthetic appeal of natural horn products either stag or mammoth ivory or you know uh one of my absolute favorites is muskox oh it's so beautiful um but i have
1: the smell
3: Eh, it's not that bad. open the door. turn on a fan. put your big boy panties on. you'll be fine um, <laughs> but you know from from a from an aesthetic standpoint, those are my favorite from a just man, that is a pretty handle. I don't want to take it and use it. I just want to look at it those Those handles are fine um from a, a a making perspective, my favorite to work with are just the fanciest. Most amazing burl woods I can get my hands on. Um, Ironwood burl. My favorite, personally, is Amboyna burl. Um, just it, I, the color and the richness and the, the, fe- the featuring and the chatoyance in the burl itself is just fantastic. Runner-up to that is Koa. Um, when I can get a really premium piece of Koa, oh, it's just, just fun. Um, those are my favorite to work with. Um, but all of my personal knives... Macarta and g10 every day of the week if if i'm gonna put it on my belt it's probably got Macarta or g10 uh,
1: especially now with some of the artistic Macartas that are available
3: oh no black
1: well that, that's just classic
3: black. yep it just it just yep. speak and remember remember yeah. when we started and you asked what my favorite knife is the loveless shoot knife not with the stag green Macarta. Just, there's just something clean and elegant about that. Where I'm not trying to distract you with the fanciness of my material. I'm not trying to, to, you know, engraving it. Nope. This is what it is it's a knife. It doesn't need anything fancy on it to do its job. Anything fancy is just added to distraction. This is my knife. You know. Now,
1: wasn't it uh, Henry Ford that said, give me it in any color as long as, as it's long black? As long as it's black.
3: That was, that was Henry Ford. You can get any color you want as long as it's black. Yep. And, you know, and, and that's that's another kind of philosophical thing from my perspective that I've, I've actually talked to a couple of collectors over the years that were angry with me um, because I pretty much refused to use Damascus or mammoth ivory or, you know, fancy handle materials or fancy materials at all until after I got my journeyman smith. I just wasn't going to do it because I didn't want to start making fancy knives until I had satisfied myself that I could make a simple knife really well. You know,
1: know, I have some guys have a really visceral reaction to art knives. Mm -hmm. I'm indifferent about art knives as long as they're well-made. Sure. Nothing upsets me more than a $4,000 handle on a knife with an asymmetrical plunge line.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, as long as, as as long as your stru- your construction is good mm-hmm. hey you know, God love you it's not my style but yeah have at it
3: yep and I think uh, I think if I look back through my books I've got like six or eight knives ever that were made with Damascus before I got my journeyman Smith now I've made a lot since then because all right I got my journeyman Smith I feel like I have fairly well proven to the world that I can make a simple, clean knife elegantly and move on now i've got to learn how to make the fancy right so now I've, I've spent the last year or two all right making damascus and here's where we're going to do this and we're going to make these much more complex handled designs and and construction methods and actually learn how to get into the art aspect versus the you know, uh, the craftsmanship aspect and it's, it's so common, so easy, and so annoying to me when people skip over the craftsmanship and go straight to the art. So you, know, you, you can't do that. This isn't, a, a, this isn't to be set on a wall and admired from 20 feet away. Somebody's going to hold this in their hand. Somebody's going to carry this in the woods. Somebody may you know have their life depending on the use, usability of this tool. Learn to be a craftsman and then be pretty later.
1: Yeah, those are nice rims, but it's still a, a mid-80s Camry.
3: <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly, exactly.
1: Very cool. Where do you get your inspiration
2: from most of your knives? Do you look at other makers or uh, things that you've used before? Or?
3: In, in a in a limited fashion, I look at other makers. Um, like I was saying before, I, so there's, there's a, a group of four that I really kind of, they, they really trip my trigger uh in just general terms uh Don Fogg, Matt Lamy, Burt Foster and Jason Knight. And if you look at their work other than Don Fogg, Don Fogg is an outlier. Um but Matt Lamy, Burt Foster and Jason Knight all do a very similar uh design to their their blade. They tend to be large, broad blades, very sculpted handles and there's definitely a, a kind of a, an S curve flow from the handle into the blade. Uh, and that's that's Something that I really strive for uh, in, in my own work is to kind of have that same feel and, and structure. Uh, now, there are other...
1: That's very telling. Say again? I said that's very telling.
3: <laughs> well, thank you. Um, now, there there's other features and facets of blade that I look to other other makers for. Like, um, in terms of, of guard shaping, look up Larry Fuegan. Uh, In terms of blade, uh, like blade grinds themselves, Tim Hancock, uh, you know, so there's, there's in each individual little piece of the knife, you know, there's, there's this guy that makes this part of the knife the way I want to make it. So whenever I see one of his knives, I look at that part of the knife and go, all right, that's how he did that one. That's how he did that one, and and that kind of inspires me into my work, and you know my my knives end up being this this weird uh, you know amalgamation of all these different things, and th- that didn't work for me very well for a few years until I kind of figured out how to make that my own style. Um, so, at this point in my in my career art- artistically speaking, I don't feel like I really pull inspiration from any modern makers i've kind of gotten to the point where this is this is the style that i do and it was based off of these other guys but it's gotten to the point where you know that's 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 my knife and you know i i can flip through magazines uh, this happened just recently i, I had a knife in uh, knives illustrated and i was looking through the magazine oh hey that's my knife i know that knife you know, and, and you learn to you can recognize your own work from across the room, you know, and it just because it's it's that shape and flow and, and so forth. Most of my inspiration these days is actually from middle middle ages swords, uh, oak shot style swords. Uh, that is something that has been really really kind of tripping my creative triggers lately. Um, I've been I've been talking to a, a friend of mine, Master Smith. Uh, for a while about some, some design ideas that I want to incorporate into my master Smith test dagger, um, very heavily based on, uh, French fleur de lis. Um, so a lot of, lot of curves and sculpting and, you know, three dimensional shapes versus just a, you know, kind of bar stock guard. No, that's not going to be, you know, so most of my inspiration nowadays is coming from, uh, you know, middle ages sword stuff. <laughs>
1: Now, we've, uh, we've already mentioned you were on Fortune and Fire. Um, mm-hmm. Two of the things that I've always wanted to know okay. is, well, and it's, we've, we've had a couple of guys on. It's, it's a personal perspective, but I'd like to get your perspective. Sure. Uh, being on Fortune and Fire, what was it like, and who is the cutest judge?
3: Um, Fortune and Fire was, was a fantastic experience. I had a lot of fun. It was, it was awesome, and not at all what I expected it to be. One thing, and, and I've talked to a couple of guys who were who were you know thinking about or interviewing to get onto the show and so forth, and, and the advice that I try and give everybody who's even thinking about that is, it's a game show. <laughs> it is not an instructional documentary. Nobody cares how accurately you did it from a historical context. It's a game show, right? Yeah. You're you're playing Survivor with a forge, right? It's it's who's gonna get voted off the island. So
1: You're when, playing for the crowd. Right,
3: right. So, you know, when the judges say this is these are gonna be the tests, make a knife that'll do those tests. Don't try and put your spin on it. Don't try and, you know stuff like that. Don't be historically you know, just, correct. It's a game show. But, I mean historically correct is a is a fantastic place to start from because if it worked historically for hundreds of years, it's probably a good construction method. Fair right? point. Right? But don't get so caught up in, well, this is the way they did it in, yeah, I don't don't care.
1: They also, you
3: you have to do it right now, and you only have a half an hour. And they
1: were also not hacking ice blocks in 1300.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Right, 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 exactly. Not, not with knives anyways. You know, they'd use axes for that. yeah. So, you know, it's, it's a, it was a fantastic experience. It was a lot of fun and you do a lot of sitting around, which drove me crazy. <laughs> and I was like, can I,
1: you don't sit still very well. I
3: do. I'm, I have been pacing this entire interview. I don't sit still at all if I can help it, you know, unless I'm hyper-focused. Like I can sit still for hours if I'm polishing something because I'm, I'm focused. I'm in the blade. I'm doing this thing, but just sit here and, and, I I I can't sit and watch TV. I I just I can't. I can sit and watch T V and, you know, make paracord bracelets. Or I can sit and watch TV and do this or, or that or the other, but I, I can't I have to be doing something. I can't just sit here. Like, oh, oh, oh,
1: oh, Drives me crazy. And <laughs> there's and I assume there's there's some producing going on because some of the first episodes I saw I'd see somebody's choice and go, Why the hell would you do that Mm -hmm. and then later i started realizing well there really weren't that many options no
3: no there really aren't they they kind of shoehorn you pretty hard one of the the, uh, you know specific to my episode one of the most annoying things we were supposed to make a friction folder the blade had to be eight inches minimum yeah and it's a friction folder And, and one of the rules from the judges is the blade must go All the way into the handle. Right? Seems fair. It's a folder.
1: Which makes a giant handle.
3: Yes! Guess what they (laughs) didn't have? Any handle (laughs) material in large pieces. Any handle material in large pieces. (laughs) Like, nothing. It was all, you you know, a standard handle block. It's about five and a half inches long at the most. They had, you know, chunks of micarta scales and stuff five and a half inches like that It's like uh well uh, i need eight and a half to put my eight inch blade in minimum
1: yeah, sounds like me yeah
3: so that was the uh <laughs> you know so that you know that was i i i think that they were i think they were with f- this in in the handle material that was available in the pantry because there was nothing there uh that we could just you know use as pieces to go from
2: well, the, the person probably didn't get the memo so, to stock up on stuff like that. No, I imagine they did it
1: for the the drama value. Because uh, I also would imagine they,
3: Yeah, there's.
2: I mean, you watch
3: any show. There's somewhere in there where you go that they just that was just manufactured drama. They, they you know they were making it hard. Like, um, you've I, if you've watched the show a lot, you've seen a couple of people accidentally use twenty four hour epoxy. Yeah. Um. It's not labeled real well. <laughs> it's not. It's the black cap and the red cap. Well, if you've made knives for a while, black cap and red cap. I need half of each and I've got epoxy. Yay. Um, but they're not, you know, the, all the labels are taking off because you're on a video show and there's they don't have labels on anything. You know, when they came to, to my home shop to film me the, the first day, they spent hours going through and putting gaffers tape over every label of every machine in my shop. Every machine – like the WD-40 can had gaffer's tape over it so you couldn't read the logo. Mm. Anybody who's yeah. ever picked up a WD-40 can knows I'm holding a WD-40 can in my hand, but it's got gaffer's tape on it. Well, same thing with the epoxy. there's The, the labels are covered up, mm. You know, stuff like that.
1: Um, and I imagine it's like working in somebody else's shop. Mm-hmm. In your shop, you know where everything is, and you know the idiosyncrasies of everything you're using. Mm-hmm. And there, it's you know, they'll have the Kool Aid, but no sugar.
3: Yeah, well, it it so they didn't they didn't put it anywhere in the episode. But um, when they first, so I've used Bader grinders before, and at the time they were using Bader grinders. Well, uh, I had never used a Bader grinder that had two lock handles on the tool arm, so. You know, we, we, you know, I was working and I went to go use the baiter and I needed to change out the, the tool arm to something else. And I unlocked the one on top, which is the only one I've ever seen on a baiter, and it wouldn't move. I was like, oh, fuck this. So I grabbed a hammer and started beating the tool arm out. I was like, you are coming out. I have work to do. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and they, they, I only have two hours. They don't encourage you to um to to uh, uh be dramatic in your uh, uh usage of your time yeah, but it's made very clear that uh they don't expect you to just stroll in there whistling and you know do 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 do, do and get it if, done
1: if you're not panicking we're going to make you
3: yes, yeah, something will happen, and you will panic
1: yeah which that helps so. uh, that helps me appreciate some of the decisions when I see. Knife makers that I know are a very experienced, very skilled makers, and I look at them and go, "Why the hell did you do that?" Well, that mm-hmm. that makes a little yep. more sense.
3: Yeah, because it's uh, from the show's perspective, it looks like a fully stocked shop. It's not. You've got a forge, you've got a grinder, you've got a drill press. That's kind of it. Like that's that's it. So. You know any any kind of fanciness that I mean they've got the hydraulic press and the and the big blue hammer, but um, you know that's just that's just going to save you some some arm time in the forging process. You know, yeah. If you if you watch the show, there's a there's a very nice jet mill over in the corner. You're not allowed to touch it. Not allowed to use
0: it. Yeah, that's backdrop.
3: Right, right, exactly. So there's there's a lot of the stuff that you're, you're looking at in the show that you know. I, with some experience with machine tools and so forth, look at it and go, dude, there's a, there's a mill right there. It would do what you're trying to do so much easier than you're screwing around with needle files. Yeah, but they're not allowed to touch it. So get out the needle files and have fun.
1: Well, and to, to center my edges, I've always used a height gauge on a mm-hmm. uh, on a stone platform or stone Mm -hmm. if yeah surface plate yeah if i didn't have my height gauge i could swag something using some or some uh drill bits maybe but that would Mm -hmm. that would blow my show
3: yep yep and they don't have any of that there now you can you're allowed to bring i don't i don't know if the rules are still exactly the same but i've i've heard that they're at least very similar um you're allowed to bring five tools with you hand tools nothing powered um and once you get there and they tell you what the first challenge is going to be you may choose two of the tools you brought with you to go into the challenge right so i had to use my hammer because i I cannot use any hammer but mine because i've shaped the handle to work with my hand yeah
1: that's like trying Um, to use somebody else's tool you just it's just not right oh
3: no it's it, it's even worse for oh, me because you know I've, I've had to custom shape my handle <laughs> yeah. because of my messed up fingers so i can I can use any old hammer for uh, you know a minute to show you something but if I'm gonna actually forge for an hour and end up with a finished product that I'm proud of i I need to use my hammer <laughs> I'm gonna have to use my hammer thank you <laughs> you know um so you know you're allowed to bring a few tools with you but you're only allowed to bring two tools into the into the actual challenge so i ended up using my hammer and i don't i think i brought in uh, uh, um some needle files and i didn't end up using them um i think that's what i brought in i can't remember exactly uh, but yeah you'll see i've seen guys bring in height gauges and they spend you know 15 minutes of their time trying to dial in with their height gauge and figure you don't have a surface grinder to get parallel lines with anyways. What are you doing, brother? It's not going to work. And your you height know?
1: gauge is useless if the surface you're you're basing it on in dead flat.
3: Mm-hmm. And they don't have any surface pli- plates. They don't have any machinist plates. All they've got are the welding tables, which are, I mean.
2: <laughs>
3: flat-ish. Flat-ish, you know.
2: You'd be, al- be almost better to use the drill press table. Or the floor.
3: Yes, <laughs> Uh, the drill press table, would you know, it's actually at least a machine yeah. blanchard ground surface um, that hasn't been, you know, weld boogered up and angle grinded off and all that
2: good stuff. There's, there's probably quite a few holes drilled through that table, too, from watching some of those people use it.
3: Yeah, yes. It's, it's not in the greatest of shape. For I mean, for a welding table, for a fabricating table, it's fine. They're fantastic tables. But, you know, to try and do any machinist quality layouts on... Yeah, don't, don't, don't I was talking about
2: the drill.
1: I was talking about the drill press.
3: Oh, yes, the drill press has a lot of holes in it.
1: <laughs> yes. Sir. So, where do you see the industry going and uh, what what do you think the next the next big thing is going to be?
3: Man, if I knew that, you and I could <laughs> you and I could retire.
1: I was really hoping you could you could throw me a bone here. <laughs>
3: This put this part was going to be curiously edited off. Wow, he's uh, on to
1: us,
0: Kyle! <laughs> oh, quick bailout!
3: Uh, <laughs> I, I think I think the entire industry is going to boil down to nothing but ten-inch Damascus Bowie choppers with mammoth ivory handles. That it, that's all you'll ever see at the Blade Show ever again.
1: That explains some things I saw on your table this year.
3: <laughs> no, absolutely not. Um, I. I, I I don't see the the market moving that way at all. Um, I think what you're going to see a lot more, at least in terms of the market I play in, um, which is you know more the more of the ABS style market. You're going to see a lot more uh, forged bowies with a more tactical uh, ish uh, flair. You're going to see much simpler handle. Uh, materials than you 've seen a lot of the past the 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 super fancy mammoth ivory and muskox horn and stag handles will still be there in example, uh, but they will not be the standard in my opinion I think you 're going to see a lot more
1: well you, you can 't import mammoth ivory anymore because it 's a protected species
3: no you you can you can that was that was uh, that was a rule that was uh, put out by the ePA and it ended up getting killed um, you you can get it. It's prohibitively expensive. You know, you, you can't get anything for less than a couple hundred dollars. Um, and what you can get for a couple hundred dollars isn't really worth putting on a knife. Um, so it's, it's always going to be some
1: nice bolster. Yeah.
3: It's always going to be very rare, but you know, you, you get the problem that you will always have with having this conversation with a knife maker is that they're they're going to tend to answer it from the perspective of the guy making the knife, right? So think about it from the other perspective, from the guys that are buying the knives, right? The guys that have been collecting knives from, you know, Bob Loveless and Bill Moran and Don Fogg and, you know, uh, Jerry Fisk and, and, you know, the the older guard of the forged knife crew, uh, those guys are are getting older and they're retiring and they're, you know, they're, they're passing their collection onto their children. And they're, you know, quite unfortunately, some of them are dying and you know, that the market is going to shift based upon who is buying knives and what type of knives they're buying. all Right. So what you're going to see in my opinion over the next five to 10 years is guys who have, who have had their fill of the tactical folder market and are going to want to branch out into other markets and they're going to look at, well, I've got, I got lots of folders. Let's, let's go see what a Bowie knife would look like. Let's go see, you know, what we can get in a, in, in this type of a knife or from this different type of a maker or so forth. Um, The, the, the classic Bowie knife with stag handle and, you know, and stainless steel guard and so forth, I don't think is going to be a, a hugely marketable, Knife unless you're selling it to a collector who already has a bunch of those, uh and that collector is right now a dying breed now, I would expect just due to the way that markets work twenty thirty years from now, that's going to become vogue again, and it'll be all the 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 rage to go and you know everybody will be putting stag on every knife out there, but that we're not going to see that over the next five to ten years
1: yeah i w- I would agree. Thank you very much, uh I, I never
3: I never did get to tell you who was the cutest judge on Fortune Fire.
1: You know, I was I was torn between holding your feet to the fire on that one or or giving you a pass.
3: <laughs> you 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 were gonna you no, no, you were you scared know, of what I, I was gonna Kyle say.
1: did send me a text message you wanting to scared. know do we really want to go down this path? Because we have had a talk about this already. <laughs> <laughs> who is the cutest judge
3: who is the cutest judge
1: and i'm not talking personality i mean
3: (laughs) (laughs) i mean you you got dave baker there and he's he's always snazzy with his vests and his pocket watch and even a a properly tartaned kilt you've got to respect the tartaned kilt
1: yeah. Uh, then there's And I believe that, I mean, he's he. I think he tips the scale on towards a true Wesker, doesn't he? Oh yes,
3: absolutely. Yes. Um. Uh, so now, in my episode, uh, Jason Knight was the was the master smith judge, and I, I have a lot of love and respect for Jason, but he's just not cute. You know, he's he's just not.
1: I mean, cute. You'd take him home, but you wouldn't introduce him to your parents.
3: <laughs> right, right. And then there's there's Doug Marquita, who's uh he, he's a fantastic guy, very high energy. If you've ever met him and talked to him, holy dude, less espresso, <laughs> calm down. <laughs> but also not cute. I I I can't I can't properly attach the adjective of cute to any judge on that show, but Dave.
1: Yeah, I can't argue with that. You know, there there's something about an older man with a little with a little confidence, some experience.
3: It's, it's just that vest, man. It just it just mm. <laughs> I'm a sucker for a man in yeah. a vest, I guess. I don't know. hmm And that and that <laughs> properly groomed goatee. Yes. Very nice. Very nice.
1: Nice. You know you like it. You uncomfortable yet, Kyle?
2: You ready? <laughs> put your two cents in. Uh all right. I think I'm ready to hit the outro on this one. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: you know, sometimes I can get it That up. sounded uncomfortable to me That sounded like, good lord, you please, know, it, please Sometimes please it takes a little
1: longer than others But y'all all know that, <laughs> The show, the wrap-up point for me The success point for me in any one show Is when Kyle gets uncomfortable
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah So, uh <laughs> Steven, you want to tell us where you can uh, Find some of your uh, Blades and your production knives and stuff?
3: Oh, <sighs> um Actually, finding my stuff to buy right now is really hard because I haven't made anything to sell in a long time. Um, I do have occasion. I do occasionally have pieces uh, that I get over to Arizona, um, Arizona Knives, um, and of uh, my own personal uh, custom-made stuff. Um, and then uh, Feral Knives are available through the website FeralKnives.com. Uh, and, uh, or if they want to
2: find more information out about you or Yeah,
3: but and all of that can be found on my website which is fowlerblades.com.
1: Yeah, we'll have a link. We'll have a link links. to that.
3: I got links and galleries and all kinds of cool stuff.
1: FAQ and meet the maker. Yeah, I know. And uh you do it.
3: I've even got on my on my front page I've got a a link to my my Twitch stream where you can watch me working in my shop live and ask me questions and And insult my ascot
1: now remember once you've seen it you can't unsee it i know you You know before you
3: (laughs) it's a fair warning it really is it's a fair warning
2: so how how long do you do those do you do those twitch streams every day or every couple days or um
3: pretty much every saturday uh unless i'm teaching over so i've been teaching over at an art center in roswell which is a city near me um i've been teaching over there pretty much once a month Um, but unless I'm there, I'll be in my shop every Saturday working. And if I'm in the shop, the stream is live. Um, I've been trying to get better about at least a couple nights a week, uh, flipping the stream on and getting out there and doing some work. Um, trying as it's, as it's getting cooler, it's a lot more reasonable to get out in the shop because it is bloody hot out there. And when I'm not having to make a living making knives, it's really hard to go out in the hundred degree shop and, uh, you know, suck yeah. Up.
2: Well, I don't know do how you is, guys do
1: it in Georgia with the the heat and the uh, humidity, man. We wear a kilt. You know, between the canvas kilt <laughs> and the rent payment, I somehow just managed to get it done.
2: Lay the fan on the ground, pointing up, or something. I don't
1: know. <laughs> that's the Marilyn Monroe. That's that's an advanced technique. You don't mm-hmm. just start there. No, you
3: know. no, you got to work your way yeah. up to that. There's the, the danger, Will Robinson. You got to practice that one in private for a little while, at least.
2: And, uh, all right. And we'd like to thank, uh, Jess Hoffman of J. Hoffman Knives and J. Hoffman Hardwoods. You can find him on Instagram at J. Hoffman Knives and J. Hoffman Hardwoods. He said he's going to have a bunch of handle material loaded up there for you guys to take a look at uh, on J. Hoffman Hardwoods. Uh, I'd like to thank him for being a sponsor of the episode. You can find us at Knife Perspective on Facebook and Instagram, and you can find the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Tuned in Radio and uh just about any other uh podcast app that uh is out there.
1: We're everywhere.
2: <laughs> yeah. Done a, done a lot of work trying to trying to get it to where everybody wants it. And uh you can find me at cage daily com. Uh I am cage daily knives on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. And you can do Kyle at cagedailyknives or knifeperspective.com for emails if you have uh, questions about my knives or uh, have information or uh, things
1: about the podcast.'d love to hear from you. You want to tell them about you, Dan? Um, I'm Dan Eastland with Dogwood Custom Knives. You can uh, reach me at www.dogwoodcustomknives. Dogwood Custom Knives for all your cutlery needs. or uh, Dan at Dogwood Custom Knives is my email. You can also well. I have a Dan at KnifePerspective dot com email address, but I forgot the password. So <laughs> really, the Dan at Dogwood is. I mean, if you have a complaint, send that to Dan at KnifePerspective dot com. Oh, I, I have. Complaints. If you have a question, or you want to tell me how awesome I am, that would be the Dan at DogwoodCustomKnives.com dot com email. <laughs>
2: awesome. And uh, yeah, thanks, Stephen, for
1: uh, lots of information and the the great chat. I'm really looking forward to having you back for the, the deep dive on Damascus. Absolutely. My pleasure. Oh, man. That's got a nice ring to it. Yeah,
3: yeah brother. Let's do it.
1: All righty. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> Say good night, Kyle. Yeah, good night, Kyle.
2: <laughs> good night,
3: Kyle.
1: <laughs> well,
0: let's
3: take it to the edge because that's what's expected in this discussion. This is the night prospective Let's get to the point We're gonna talk about our things night. Cause that's what's expected It's the night prospective
1: We are recording. All right. Give me a three, two, one. Yeah, we're already recording whenever you want to start. All right. Yeah. it. it it's a mm. psychological thing. I know if, if you give me a countdown, you'll get a much better intro. <laughs> three,
0: two, one.